show. I might plug some dates early. Do it. Do it. And we're live. Judd. How are you, buddy? Yeah. Judd Apatow here. Dude, you know Sussman real well. Not only do I know your manager, Sussman, Jeff Sussman, when I was a kid, I loved comedy, so I got a job at the East Side Comedy Club, at, which was in Huntington on Long Island. This is about 83, 84. He was the bartender, and he used to give me rides home because I lived really far away, and I used to take a cab home and spend all the money I made as a dishwasher on the cab ride home. Wow. But I just wanted to be in the club near comics. Eddie Murphy was coming in. It was crazy. Uh, and I swear to God, this is no BS. You have those people in your life that you remember who were insanely kind and cool. And Jeff Sussman was like that. As a, as a young kid, I was maybe 15 or 16, I thought, this is the greatest guy I've ever met. He's so nice to me. He gives me a ride home. He's funny. Uh, and I'm so glad uh, that he's rich now. <laughs> he's been my manager since I was an open micer. Yeah. He discovered incredible. me as an open micer in Boston. Who were his first clients? Uh, Bob Nelson. Yeah. Bob Nelson at the Eastside Comedy Club. Nothing funnier. He used to do uh, a, a show once a week. And one of the things he did is he would just turn on the radio and scan through the channels and do improv based on what was on the radio. So if it was elevated music, he would do a dentist routine. If it was heavy metal, he would suddenly do like a heavy metal guy. And it was incredible. Yeah, that guy was huge at one point in time. And then I think he blew a fuse or something. I think he's a very religious person now, and he still performs in Branson. That's a nice way of saying he blew a fuse. Well, it depends, well, you on your, <laughs> depends on your view of things, I guess. <laughs> maybe he's happier than all of us. Maybe. <laughs> Highly unlikely. But maybe. But God, was he funny. I mean, truly yeah. as funny as people get. And then he built a thing on stage. You have to imagine this. He built like a wall on the stage. And in the wall, he built two doors. And he would do all these bits where he would come in and out of doors as different people. Yeah. And then he did a thing where he would like come out of the door... Like run out of one door, across the stage and in the other door, and then run out the that door again as a different person so it looked like he was chasing himself. Like it would be oh. like a, a gorilla chasing Bob, but he would just change his body language as he ran in and out of these doors. It was really creative. No one has ever really done stuff like that since even. Well, something happened somewhere along the line where Carrot Top owns props. Mm -hmm. They don't no one does props anymore. You remember when yeah. we were first starting out there was prop comics It was sure. a genre. There was uh, a Dennis Miller used to do props when he started. I heard that He used to put his lips through a 45 record and I, I forgot what the bit was and I, I threw a couple of props first few times I went on stage. I remember bringing a light and putting it to my finger to make my finger look like E.T.'s finger. I can't quite remember what the bit was, but that's how little material I had. <laughs> Isn't it funny, though, that that genre is just sort of dissolved? And it is funny as hell. I went to see Carrot Top in Vegas. I mean, it's a ridiculous show. I laughed my ass off. I brought my whole family. We really laughed hard. I mean, that is a funny genre of just ridiculous, stupid prop jokes. Yeah, Carrot Top gets way more shit than he deserves. He's uh -oh. very funny. Oh, no, he's very crazy silly. funny. I mean, I'm always for the silly guys. You know, I love, you know, the smart people and the inventive people, but the silly guy is also pretty great, and it's hard to write 
super silly jokes that make people laugh out loud. Like, there's comedians who are funny, and you're like, oh, that's funny. And then there are people who actually make you piss your pants. Yeah. And the one thing that, that Carrot Top did that made me laugh was he was runs around the crowd, and at some point he's, like, giving the crowd shots. He's handing out cups and really fast pouring shots, and they're spilling on people, and he's running around giving people shots. And, and then he, like, turned to some lady. He's like, oh, okay, give it to you. You're pregnant. But she clearly wasn't pregnant. It was just a chubby lady, and it got really awkward for her. Oh, no. That's always the best when you make that mistake. Are you allowed to just give people shots? Like, what if you have an alcoholic, but they're just, they're they're sober, but (laughs) you're, like, so influential, they go, oh, fuck it, one drink's not going to hurt, and then, boom, you just throw their life off track. Carrot Top wanted it to happen. Yeah, you got to be careful with that, no? Uh I certainly am not pouring booze for the crowd, but I, I appreciated it as someone <laughs> observing Carrot Top. I appreciate that, too. But I would think as a <laughs> performer, you'd have to be really concerned. I know sure. too many people that you give them one shot and they they, yeah. they van their Doug Stampler from House of Cards. I, maybe Carrot Top is getting pre-show releases. Mm. There could be a whole system. There could be. Of, of, of how he knows who to give the shots to. Yeah. <laughs> he survives in Vegas, too. That does. There's not a whole lot of people that do that anymore. Yeah, there's like Penn and Teller, and yeah, they've been there forever, right? But their show is a magic show, right? And then there used to be like a lot of residents that were doing stand up. George Wallace, Rita Mm -hmm. Rudner, George George Wallace quit doing that, right? Yeah, he did it for a long time, and he had enough at some point. Yeah, he explained to me how hard it is. Like you have to, you have to fill that room like every night. Filling rooms. Let me say, as someone who makes movies and is terrified that people will show up, fill-in rooms scares me as well. Like, we have a movie, The Big Sick. It opens in New York and L.A. this weekend. And then in two weeks, it opens around the country. It's a Kamel Nanjiani, Holly Hunter, and Ray Romano, based on an experience that happened to Kamel Nanjiani when he met his wife. And he was he's from Pakistan, and his parents wanted him to have a, an arranged marriage, but he fell in love with an American woman. And then she quickly got sick and had to be put into a coma. And it's this really hilarious, fascinating, true story about him hanging out with her parents while she's in a coma. <laughs> it's just a very unique story. But Jesus. it works great. It's like 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's like one of those gem movies that comes around every like four or five years. What's it called? It's called The Big Sick. And so oh. like right now, I'm terrified. You know, will people go? Will you get off your ass for a great, hilarious movie to go to a theater? And it's the same thing with... Uh, Stand up, you know, now that I'm doing some concerts, I do you like track like how they're selling? It's a scary thing. They go, yeah, don't worry about this city. Uh, they always sell late. And then you look at your numbers for months and no one bought tickets. And then like in the last two weeks, they sell out. Or do you just not tune in at all? I try to tune into as little as I possibly can. Yeah. Other than like doing the jokes themselves, doing the yeah. shows themselves, you know, family hobbies. Yes. I don't tune in anymore. Yeah. I just feel like there's no reason to have fuck you money if you don't say fuck you. So I'm supposed to be saying fuck you right now. Yeah, but not really saying fuck yes. you. Just there's things to think about and there's yeah. things to not think about. Like there's like the things that like you don't have really any control over. Yes. Like whether or not people buy tickets. Eh. Yeah. You're fucking hilarious. Yeah. You're Judd Apatow. <laughs> what are you worried about, man? You're guess, super successful. You've but, done some of the greatest movies of all time. But the things that always drive me is the terror of things not working out. Yeah. So that's what keeps me on my game is is to be scared. That's why I'm going to tell your crowd right now. Well, that's good because that's one of the reasons why you're still good. But just let me help you out, dude. You've, you've you made some of the greatest comedy movies ever. Just chill out. 
No, I can't chill out, Joe. I can't chill out. That's why I'm going to tell people I'll be at the Columbus Theater in Providence, Rhode Island, oh. July 25th. Damn, uh, early, early with the plugs. Yeah. And then uh, Ridgefield Playhouse on July 23rd in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Then I'm at the the Wilbur in Boston. That's one of the great. The best place. The great, the, great place. Do you have a website where people could read all these? Because they're not going to remember. They're probably in their car right now. They're like, fucking this The guy. Wilbur in Boston. July 24th, thewilbur.com. I don't know. See, this is how but I do your it website. wrong. Do you have, you have, have a website? I have no website. I've got nothing. You don't have a website? I don't. Am I supposed to? I thought <laughs> yes. websites. My yeah. kids make fun of me if I even talk about the web. Like if I say to my kids, yeah, let's find out on the on the World Wide Web. They're like, Dad, uh. no one calls it the World Wide Web anymore. My daughter yelled at me the other day. She said, Dad, no one emails. Don't email me. Text me. Mm. And she acted like I was like talking about ham radio. Yeah, you might want to tell your kid to shut the fuck up. Exactly. That's ridiculous. Well, that's, no one emails everybody. <laughs> I email every day. What are you talking about? I guess the kids don't. The kids don't have attachments. Well, the, I think that they don't need it because there's no attachments. My kid never has a PDF to send. That's true, and they don't spell your. They don't care. Every kid spells you are. Every fucking or kid. there. It's like it's there. Going, yeah. And what? How old are your kids? I have a twenty. I have a yeah. nine and a seven. Girls? Oh. Yeah, I'm all girls. I'm 19 all and girls. 14. All girls. Chaos. Chaos and... Uh, they all gang up on me. And the teen years are rough. They're rough. They turn on you. A little I, bit. The, genetically, I think they're supposed to like push for their freedom and turn on you for a well, while. Well, I also think they're so confused. There's so many hormones raging yes. through their system that yeah. didn't exist. Just like they're a new person. Like yeah. if, you, if you stop and think about how you are when you're... 11 and then how you are when you're 15. It's only four years later, and you're yeah. a totally different human Yes, I, I tell them that I say uh, You're acting hormonal right now. Can you please stop? They can't and help it. We though. talk about the chemicals. I have this book. It's called uh, Yes, your teen is crazy and then whenever they give me a hard time, I just take it out and just start reading it in front of them. <laughs> but it is all about how their brain isn't even cooked yet. That, right. that, that your brain isn't really cooked till your early twenties, yeah. and your impulse control and everything is gone. And that what you're supposed to do as a parent is model sane behavior. And if they if they see you not lose your shit thousands of times, maybe that will program them to handle problems well. Mm. But they are going to freak out a ton, and you shouldn't get that mad out of them, at them because they're not capable of not freaking out. But that is a hard advice. Yeah, it's hard advice. And when you get down to the youngest one, like my, my youngest is seven, yeah. and I'm like, don't you have your shit together yet? Come on. <laughs> Everybody else is older than you. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like, they, don't, they don't get a full shot. But the younger kid always thinks they're allowed to do what the older kids do. So yeah. it gets scarier as, as you have more kids right. because they go, well, my older sister does that, so aren't I allowed to do that now? And you're like, no, you're seven. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a really weird time, I think, especially in California. You know, uh, marijuana is basically legal. It's a di it's a difficult debate to have with kids. Yeah, when it is legal, you can't even pull out the it's illegal card. Right. I'm not worried about marijuana. Yeah. At what age though would you not worry about marijuana? I'm not worried about it. At any age, if your no. seven year old's like, you know what, someone handed me an edible. I absolutely don't want my seven year old or my <laughs> nine year old to be smoking pot. But I'm not worried about pot. I'm worried about alcohol. Yes. yes. I'm worried about alcohol and I'm worried about driving. I'm worried yeah. about like teens drinking and driving. That's that that yeah. freaks me out. Like her being with her friends as they go to high school and. Mm -hmm. That, that freaks me out because kids just don't know what their tolerances are. They don't understand the effects of yeah. alcohol on the, the body and your ability to react. That's it's, all about, it's all about Uber. 
So yes. like a lift. And, yeah. I, and that is one thing I noticed is that all the kids are there seems to be a lot less drunk driving because they all just Uber. Oh, it's amazing. If you can afford it, but yeah. if you can't afford it, I guess you're still screwed. Yeah, you are screwed if you can't afford it, but it's pretty reasonable if you're just moving around yeah. a general area, like if you're hopping around West Hollywood and going from the store to the improv, like yeah. people do it all the time. It's a couple bucks. It's yes. not that big a deal, and it's like it saves you all the worry and hassle of being a drunk. Yeah. Are you a neurotic dad or a, a calm dad? I try to be as calm as I can. Yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of neurotic that seeks in, seeps in every now and then, but yeah. I try to be really calm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you know, the thing is just everybody does it. Everybody grows up. Just yeah. have it have it be fun as I, much as possible. I have a friend, uh, an older gentleman who's had a bunch of kids. He's always... He always says to me, you know, you got to let them go through it. You know, they're going to go, th they're going to do the drugs. It's fine. They get through it. They figure it out. You know, you got, they're going to have sex. You can't stop it. You got to let them go through it. They'll, they'll figure it out. Is your friend the dude from the Big Lebowski? <laughs> yes. It's, a, it's literally uh, John Goodman. I saw uh, the dude was, uh, what's his face? Not John Goodman, the other guy. What's his name? I mean, Jeff, uh, what Jeff, the fuck? Oh, Jeff Bridges? Jeff Bridges. Yeah, he's you, the dude. Oh, he's the dude. Yeah, in the movie, right? Yeah. yeah. I saw it the other day. I haven't seen it in years. I was fucking crying laughing. Oh, it's a good one. That used to be my movie, my litmus test for whether or not I could talk to you. Like, <laughs> how do you feel about the Big Lebowski? But piece of shit. I gotta go. Yes. We did an episode of Freaks and Geeks where he shows John Daly's character, Sam Weir, shows a girl the jerk. And she hates it. And, <sighs> and he breaks up with the cheerleader at school good, because good she hates him. the jerk. Good for him. Yeah, I had that with one. a girl in high school where she hated uh, E.T., and I and that was a rough one. We're a rough one to survive back then. Yeah, there's certain music and there's certain movies that you're just not allowed to like or hate. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a funny thing with my wife and I is we violently disagree on a lot of that stuff. We don't have like one or two. Violently? Yeah, there's there's one or two. Like the main things that mean the most to me in the world where my wife's like, I can't, I can't, I don't like it at all. And then stuff that she likes that I, I go, I, I, I hate that more than anything. I think that's good. I think it's good, especially with your spouse, to have like very few interests yes. in common. <laughs> I, don't, I think all those people that do everything together are fucking weirdos, man. They always freak me out. That that is interesting, yeah, because it's a, uh, it's like stand up. My wife, I met her when I wasn't doing stand up. I did stand up from the time I was seventeen till I was twenty four. I met my wife when I was twenty eight or twenty nine, so she didn't know anything about stand up till three years ago when I started doing it again. Yeah, what what caused you to do that? I remember when you started coming around, everybody's like, look at Judd, what's was, he doing? It's funny, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, when I stopped when I was 24, I was pretty burnt out. So that was 92, and I was getting a lot of writing work. The Ben Stiller show got picked up, this sketch show we did for Fox, and that kept me busy, and I was making, you know, a lot of money compared to the $500 a week I was making doing stand-up on the road. And I thought, well, this is the universe saying you don't need to do stand-up and you should stop. Maybe your friends are funnier than you. <laughs> and I'm living with, you know, Sandler and I'm hanging out with opening up for Jim Carrey and it's, it's daunting. You know, it's like trying to start a band and your friend is John Lennon. <laughs> you just feel like a dick. And it would be weird to not feel like a dick. Like right. if I was cocky with Jim Carrey and oh, thought yeah. I'm funnier than this guy. I mean, I'm a sane human being. I know, I know what's happening. Um, and I was also a little bored of it because I was so obsessed since I since I was ten. And 
you know, I did funny people. I did a little stand-up to write jokes for funny people. So I was writing jokes, but it was for Adam's character. And then I started hanging out with Amy Schumer, working on Trainwreck, and she would come back from these tours. And I just got jealous. I thought, that sounds like the most fun thing. And then one night, I said to her, I'm going to go up tonight just to make you laugh. Just just so you could see what it was like when I did stand-up. And then I, I told a couple of stories I had told on talk shows that I knew would go okay. And Amy was very excited, hoping I was going to bomb. Like, she was thought this would be this funny thing. Judd bombs at the Comedy Cellar. And I did pretty good, just because it's stories I know work okay. And then the Comedy Cellar said, hey, anytime you want to come back, just pop in. We'll put you up. Now, no one ever said that when I was a comic, because it was hard to get stage time. And I thought, wait a second, I'm getting treated like somebody who, who gets to show up and go on stage? I have to take advantage of this. And I went on every night the entire shoot of Trainwreck. No matter what time we finished shooting, I would drive straight to the Comedy Cellar. Wow. And I had the best time. And then I came back to L.A. and started doing the improv and the Comedy Store and Largo. And, and then I would put these benefits together at Largo once a month. And, and to me, that was the most fun because I could book a show and get, like— Shandling to come and Randy Newman or, you know, Aziz and Fiona Apple. And we did them all as benefits. And I always like producing things like that. And then slowly my act got to the point where I thought, oh, I'm, you know, I, I deserve to be here. This isn't some freak show. Well, you know, the difference between someone who writes for television and movies and, and the difference between that and a lot of stand-ups is when you're making a living writing and producing and directing and, and doing all that, you're disciplined. You yeah. write. Yes. You actually write. You have notes, you have books, you have like you're opening up your binder, you're yeah. going over your stuff. So many comics don't do that. I remember when I started, I was opening for Larry Miller, one of the legendary oh, yeah. comedians. And he he would have these incredible bits. Some of them were like ten minutes long. He had a great bit about uh, about drinking. It's one of the best stand-up bits of all time. And he had a bit about Thanksgiving and a skiing bit. And they were all like 10 minutes. And they would get funnier and funnier. And one day he said to me, you know, this is a job. you got to sit down every day and write jokes. You don't just go to the mall and watch a movie every day. Like if you sat down for two hours at a desk and treated this like it was a job that deserved your respect, you'll be a hundred times better than everybody else. Yeah. And I didn't listen to his advice at the time, <laughs> but I do now. Like now, I sit down. And right, I, that's I try why I to brought write. it up. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, you I, show up with like notes. You're like one of the rare guys at the yeah. comedy store. You'll show up with notes. Exactly. I know nobody has notes. Everyone has like a little like a business card with three bullet points on it. And I'm a little more of the, you know, the shandling tons and tons of paper till you're drowning and confused. Shandling. <laughs> you know, that's a sad one, man. What uh, a fun dude that was. Oh, the best. And I'm doing a documentary about him now yeah. for HBO. And so the most fun part about it is he always went to the Comedy Magic Club and did stand-up, even in eras where you didn't know he was doing it. That's where I met him. At the Comedy Magic Club? Yeah. And how was he? Oh, he was great. Yeah. He's just, I mean, it was like, for me, I was a huge fan of Larry Sanders' show, and Larry Sanders' show, uh, that's where Paul Sims got his start. He yes. was the producer of News Radio. And so when I, you know, when I saw him, I was like, it was one of those ones like, oh, wow, that's, uh, that's actually Gary Shandling right yeah. there. Right yeah. there where Judd Apatow is, right there. Yeah. It's a weird one. And he, and you know, the Comedy Magic Club, they tape every show. Since mm -hmm. the 80s, they have every show taped. Yeah. And I said, uh, can you give me the last 50 sets that Gary did at the Comedy Magic Club? 
and this is, you know, from the last few years. And no one's ever seen any of these jokes except the people at those shows. He didn't do them on TV. He didn't do them on talk shows. There was no special. Some of the funniest jokes you've ever heard. Just him, you know, fucking working around, on the craft, fucking fun. around, be, being so funny. <sighs> yeah. But he, he did a lot of notes. He was a, he was a disciplined guy. He, he was, well, in the 70s, he wrote so many jokes. I found these binders hundreds and hundreds of jokes in every loose leaf binder like a guy sitting at a desk all day just crafting like two sentence perfect jokes yeah but there's like the balance right there's that there's crafting the perfect jokes and then there's just being able to be loose yes and fun and yeah. hilarious well he also used to go on stage with uh just the setup and he wouldn't know the punchline and he would say the setup and hope the punchline came oh. which is pretty wild he um you know, one of the one of the great things about doing a documentary is you get to ask people for footage. So Seinfeld gave me uh, the dailies for comedians in cars getting coffee when he interviewed Gary. And then the people who made the movie Comedian about Seinfeld gave me all the dailies of a sequence that they only used 10 seconds of in the documentary, which was Gary and Jerry going to the Comedy Magic Club and doing sets and also there that night as Neilan and Chris Rock. And there's 12 tapes. It's all their performances and then their entire conversation for three hours hanging out backstage. And it is unbelievable, the conversation, how funny it is. And uh, there's a moment where Chris Rock is doing the joke about how Nelson Mandela got divorced, that even Nelson Mandela, after decades of being in prison, he could survive that, but he couldn't survive getting out and being married. He gets divorced immediately. I forgot how he worded it. But there's a shot of Shandling alone in a green room watching Rock do this bit. And as he's doing it, Gary's like saying what he, what he's like, he's guessing what the bit is as Rock's saying it, but in awe of Chris Rock. And it's a, it's a really beautiful moment and that's what the best part of doing this documentary is, is just finding little magical moments that no one would ever see if you didn't dig deep what made you decide to do this you know we did a memorial for gary when he died at the wilshire ebell theater and like a thousand people showed up and i made about five mini documentaries about gary to show in between the speakers and i thought oh this is a documentary i should just expand this and now it's like, now it's like the OJ doc of Gary. It's a big, long, epic documentary. I think people don't realize how good the Larry Sanders show was. Yeah. Like people forgot. You know, if you go back sure. and watch it again, I mean, that was a revolutionary show when it was on the air. It really was. Well, people don't go backwards. Like my kids don't go backwards digging that far. Like to them, you know, looking backwards means I'll watch all of Parks and Rec. Right. They're not digging into the 90s. Right. Uh, they go to 2015. And people forget that when the Larry Sanders show came on the air, you know, the shows on uh, HBO, it was like uh, First in 10 or Not Necessarily the News or Dream On. You know, Gary was the first show on HBO that made HBO go, oh, this is what HBO should be. We should be the quality uh, network with all of with this kind of groundbreaking television and uh you know gary was a guy who got offered all the talk shows he got offered to replace letterman um he was hosting the tonight show for johnny uh 
him and Leno would would uh, take turns doing it, and he decided he'd rather satirize it than do it. Mm. You know, and and he wanted to explore the people and not be a talk show host. He wanted to show like the world of ego that is not just talk shows, but just show business. He was fascinated with people's need for attention, his own need for attention, his own vanity and narcissism, and he wanted to explore that and and satirize how we just want to be liked so badly, like what we do to be liked, which prevents us from actually feeling love because we're so obsessed with approval. Do you talk to Jay? Do you, are you friends with Jay Leno? Yeah. Jay and I were talking about um, what it was like to host The Tonight Show and how much more fun he has now doing comedians in cars, or not comedians in cars, uh, Jay Leno's Garage. Yes. And because that's what he really loves. Yeah. And he really loves cars. And he gets to be himself while he's doing this. He doesn't have to have people on that he doesn't want. Like he, he just has people on to talk to them about cars and stuff yeah. and has comics on and all kinds of people on. But, you know, when he was talking about like having that show, he's like, you, you would have people on that you didn't give a shit about. Yes. And you had to talk to them. And for Jay, that was most everybody. Yeah. Because he loves certain things. Right. But he doesn't love sports. Right. He's not a massive movie fan. But you get him going on the things he cares about, like cars. Yeah. He's fascinated. But that, I think, was some of the fun of watching The Tonight Show. <laughs> really? Jay interviewing a young actress, and you know he doesn't care <laughs> at all. And how is he going to make it amusing <coughs> for himself and the audience. Did you see the Hicks bit that Hicks did about Jay interviewing Joey Lawrence and he blows his <laughs> yeah. brains out and it forms the NBC peacock on the wall? I mean, I always felt that... He reloads. Got, I always thought that was very unfair, <laughs> the, the Hicks and the Andy Kindler criticisms of Leno. You know, Leno was, you know, and is, you know, one of the great stand-ups of all time. I mean, in a club, you'd see Leno in the 80s. Nobody touches it. He was just the was most amazing. fun guy. And still, I saw him recently at the Improv, still is. And, you know, he made a call to, you know, to be America's host, beat everyone for forever, for, for, forever, was, was proven completely correct. But there was this idea that it was a betrayal of his club persona mm. that some comedians were so mad about and... I don't know how you could be mad at anybody for deciding how to run their show because, you know, as we've seen with other people, sometimes snarky guy runs out of gas in two years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jay found the space that was comfortable for him. And God, was he nice to me every time I was there. He's a great guy. And always super <coughs> funny when I was on the show and super nice. Would put me on when I wasn't doing stand-up just as a director, just because he liked me as a person. Um and uh, and a really a good class guy and and in the Shanley documentary, fascinating describing his observations of Gary, his observations about talk shows. Uh, I mean, what a ride he went on. To that world of being a talk show host, there's not a lot of wiggle room, especially back then. You know, as opposed to now. Now with the internet, I think a lot of like subject matter and a lot of language has opened up more. You can kind of get it. Like if you see like what's going on now with. Uh, with Seth Meyers or you know any of the other late night talk show hosts, they have much more room. Like look at Colbert, yeah. Colbert rather. Yeah. Colbert said that you know Donald Trump, the president, uses Putin like uses his mouth like Putin uses his mouth as a cock holster. Like yes. he said that on television with the phrase cock holster. Yes, they beeped it out. <clears throat> Do you, you're not aware of that? I, I'm not. I have not seen. It was seen a crazy moment. long rant, yes. and it was really hilarious because Trump. 
Trump uh, came back and, and said a bunch of things about Colbert and being tasteless <laughs> and talentless and being a loser and all these different things. Yes. And Colbert came back again. He goes, Donald Trump. He goes, I thought if there was one thing you understood, it's show business. And he goes, you responded. He goes, you responded. I win. You don't understand. So funny. Like, and it was, it was really fucking well, hilarious. Well, Trump can't help but respond. Yeah. He has no ability to go, it demeans me to acknowledge you exist. He doesn't understand that. And so I think he's easily baited into any of those situations, which is, I think, a little is what scares people, because you think... If Colbert can bait him, what right. about other countries in very serious situations? What oh, yeah. what baits him into action that he shouldn't take? Well, he blocks people on Twitter. Yeah, he's the fucking president. <laughs> people are trying to they're trying to figure out like is that like a First Amendment issue? Like was it, am yes. I allowed to communicate with the president directly through Twitter? <laughs> well, now I can't because he blocks me. Is he allowed to block people? So there's people that are considering lawsuits right now. Doesn't to, doesn't to Donald Trump understand you should just be <laughs> muting people? Yeah, just, just mute, mute them, Donald. You don't have to block them. No, he wants them to know. I want them to know. MAGA. MAGA I like, has blocked I like them. blocking people. I love blocking people. The second I see anything, I block someone even if they say one of my <coughs> movies was just okay. It Will doesn't even really? have to be that mean. Boom. I'll never see you again. Wow. Really? <laughs> if somebody says, that was that was pretty good, I'll block them. Really? I'll block them on almost a compliment. Wow. Almost a compliment. Well, some weird <laughs> underhanded stuff. If you're not kissing my ass pretty hard, you're gone. Mm. That's that's my Twitter theory. I like it. You know, I don't even need you to call me a Jew. That's the funny thing is that when people say nasty things uh, on Twitter, they always start sounding like they make sense, but then bail at the end, you know? So they'll just be like, you know, uh, give give the president a chance. You know, he was duly elected by the American people. And go jump in an oven. It's always like the two beat. The, the, oh, they're saying that to you. Yeah, it sounds sane, and then it always lands on <laughs> jump in an oven. The Jew stuff. Exactly. You know, yeah. The go, well, do you take a lot of heat for criticizing the president? Do you, do you, do I you really read that don't. stuff? I really don't. I don't. It's pretty sur- I mean, I don't think I'm saying anything that anyone else isn't saying. Because I have a simple theory about all of this stuff, which is I don't think rich people want you to be rich. I think that people are trying to be told that rich people really can handle everything. And if you let the rich people have all the money, they're just going to figure it all out. And in fact, last night was an interesting night because Donald Trump said uh, he doesn't want poor people in charge of the economy. And what, what he said that? Yeah, he said he goes, I want rich people. But it's. What he's not understanding is there are public servants who have not made the choice to be billionaires who actually understand, you know, economic theories better than, you know, the head of Walmart or something. That just because you were able to figure out how to sell M&Ms doesn't mean you can run the economy. That there are people that they don't want to be rich. They want to help other people and they are uh, very smart about ways to help the government work well. And... You know, that's like saying uh, Martin Luther King's a loser because he wasn't rich. He's not smart. And this only rich people know how to do things. I find so offensive. And I'm very surprised that people who aren't billionaires aren't more (laughs) offended at the uh, contempt that they're held in. Because you could disagree on economic theory. You could say, oh, I believe in trickle-down economics or I don't believe in trickle-down economics. But this is a government that thinks if you're not a billionaire, you're an idiot. Really think he thinks that? He said it last night. Well, I mean, it's, it's not exactly. It's a, literally said, right? a speech, which is 
would you want poor people in charge of the economy, which is the argument for having like the head of Goldman Sachs in charge of the economy. But yet, what is a poor person? How's he defining it? Is he defining it as an idiot failure or someone who hasn't decided to milk uh, this world for as much money as they can get out of it? Some people are happy to make a comfortable living and try to be giving to other people. And they can be very helpful uh, being part of our government. You don't have to be the head of Goldman Sachs uh, to be uh, to be uh, someone who can change people's lives for the better. He thinks you just get the head of Exxon, the head of Goldman Sachs, but sometimes you don't want the head of Exxon. You want someone that's thought about international relations their entire lives, and maybe they've always made two hundred grand a year. That well, okay, that's not poor. Like, what, it depends on what you're, how you define exactly. poor. Yes, and like, how he defines poor. Yeah, I which, mean, when you say yeah. you don't want a poor person running the economy, I think yeah. one argument for that would be you don't want anybody who wants radical redistribution of wealth. One one article, one um, argument rather rather would be someone who says, like, what we need to do is we need to figure out who the richest people in the world that own ninety percent of the money, and then just take that money and distribute it to everyone else. Like, this yeah. is there's some pretty radical arguments from poor sure. people. I don't think he's saying that. I think I think he equates poor with idiot. Mm. He wasn't saying I don't want the you know a Bernie Sanders type. He was saying I want. He considers like the head of Goldman Sachs to be the smartest man in the world, where there are people who who don't seek to make that much money, who are very smart and certainly capable of doing things. I think he sees people who are not the heads of industry as being incapable of being in charge of aspects of the government. Right, because that's yeah. his world. That's his, his world. world is the world of super rich people. And if you're not a super yeah. rich person, you're a loser. Well, that's the thing. It's all a winner-loser economy, which yeah. I find fascinating because he is basically calling most of the world a loser Yeah, in his world. And so, yeah, you could debate. I mean, I always think most people don't even understand most of what they talk about with politics. Like when you talk about wealth redistribution, that a lot of people have theories, but they actually don't know anything about uh, they have no information that they're that no one's read a book about it and has a, very few a, people very few I mean literally right. uh, less than one percent less than one percent are arguing about it yes. on a regular basis they've seen a few clips on Fox News yes and they have this idea in their head of what it is exactly and I think yeah. that's what's wrong with our country is no one knows anything about anything on either side like people don't know uh, you know deeply about uh, the environment there's very few people who sit down and read the study very few people right now are going to read that health care bill that is uh, before the Senate. Right. Like, like, how many people do you think, what percentage of the country think is going to sit down and read any part of it? Less than one-tenth of one yeah. percent, And if it you're will lucky. destroy their lives if they get sick and they don't have coverage. And who knows? Maybe it's perfect and we don't understand it. But people won't bother to know anything about it. Well, it's like global warming. Yeah. You talk to the average person on the right or the average person on the left about global warming, and you will see, like, it's really strange how you see these ideologically driven ideas that they have in their head about what global warming is, what causes it, and you can almost guess based on their reaction to it whether they're a Republican or whether they're liberal. Yes. And people, you know, obviously everyone talks about this, but people have chosen a side, and so now anything that that side does people are okay with it. Yeah. And so we're suddenly we're so soft on Russia. And then all these, you know, being a Republican used to be so about the evil empire and on a dime it's like people like Russia. Well, look what they did with WikiLeaks. 
WikiLeaks, everyone's turned on WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks used to be the champion of information. Used to be, these are the people that are trying to let you know all the shit that's going on behind the scenes. We're finding out all these secret emails. We're sharing them with the world. We have a media dump. We're dumping everything. Now, it's WikiLeaks is Putin's puppet, and WikiLeaks is working for Putin. The left is turned on WikiLeaks. It's quite fascinating. Well, both sides will switch based on what serves them in the moment. Yeah, but it's dark, man. It's really weird when you see, when you see it's so obvious and it's so flippant. Like there's not a lot of thought put into this. Like you, yeah. you're talking about someone like in Julian Assange. I'm not a giant Julian Assange yeah. fan as a human being, but I think what he's done is pretty goddamn courageous, and he's taken a huge hit for it. I mean, he's been stuck in this embassy in London forever. If he leaves, he will immediately be arrested. And who knows what's going to happen to him if that happens. And this guy is still out there trying to distribute information. Well, it's about is it's selective. You know, if a guy like that is just, I mean, obviously the issues are, is he putting people's lives at risk with mega dumps, which, uh, you know, reveal sources and things like that. But also is he, you know, is he manipulated to release things to serve... uh, different you know political right groups. is he doing it on purpose in well, one way or the other is where's he... the stuff on the republicans you know if we had all the all the emails of the republicans planning the trump campaign uh we'd have a whole nother story to tell now is it impossible to get their emails do they just have the best computers in the world and there's no way to get their emails or well, it depends did... on what the story is like you know yeah. that they believe i mean it's it's so hard to figure out what happened here but that seth rich guy According to uh, Kim.com and according to Julian Assange, he leaked. He was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Yeah. He worked for the DNC. He leaked some of the information that showed that the DNC was colluding. What they were trying to do was uh, con- they were conspiring to keep Bernie Sanders from winning the primary. Yes. And it proved to be true that, that they actually did do that. Yes. And Julian Assange uh, was saying after that guy got shot that somehow or another he was alluding to that if you work with us there are consequences so you had someone who was a a renegade inside the dnc who released that dump you don't have anybody like that on the the republican side it doesn't mean that the wikileaks is corrupt it just means that no one on the republican side has done that only one guy according to them i don't know if it's true they some people say russia did it but according to julian assange and according to kim.com was apparently somehow or another involved at least part of it had to do with this Seth Rich guy. That doesn't mean that they're like trying to exclusively release stuff that makes Democrats look bad. It just means no one's done it on the Republican side. Just because the information doesn't exist doesn't mean yeah. there's some sort of collusion. Well, that's, the, I guess, the mystery of it. I don't right. really know anything about the Seth Rich case. What, what is that? Because I know people are mad about He's it. He's the guy that was, he worked for the DNC and he was murdered outside of his apartment at four o'clock in the morning. They said it was a robbery, yeah. but this, he, there's a giant conspiracy theory to attach to it. But I'm just going to relay the facts. His wallet was left. His phone was left. His watch was left. His valuables that he might have been robbed of, his money, his, the, all that stuff was there. So he was just murdered. And they never found who killed him. And then immediately Julian Assange was alluding to the idea that this guy was helping them and that he was murdered because of that. And that has been hotly uh, contested. And, of course, uh, the Fox News narrative has like gone, like Sean Hannity has made a big deal out of it saying, mm-hmm. and we're going to get to the bottom of this, ladies and gentlemen, yes. which makes me more suspicious that it's not true. 
but yeah. it, it is a possibility that he was one of the people that was releasing information. I would imagine if you worked for the DNC, especially if you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, and you saw what they were doing, what they were doing is essentially they were, they were hijacking the democratic process from inside, from the Democratic Party. Yeah. And if you were a Bernie Sanders supporter, it would be horrifying. It would really piss you off. And especially if you're someone who's idealistic, you've got this idea of like what the future could be under Bernie Sanders, and you realize your own party is fucking him in the ass. And so uh, I don't know how much he released or if he released or if he was only one part of it or Russia was a part of it as well and hacking into the DNC. Yeah. But the bottom line at the end of the day is it exposed corruption. I mean, that's really what it was. There's absolute clear corruption in the DNC. Yeah. And everybody got away with it. The woman who was in charge, she went and left and went immediately to work for Hillary's campaign. And, you know, it's it wasn't good stuff. It was all yes. bad, no matter what, no matter who re released it. It just showed you how gross the system is. Yeah. Uh, to the core. Yeah. All, all the way around. On both sides. Because I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. I should be. But I, Why I, should I, you be? I, I, I guess that there's always more going on than we think but i also think that most people are too dumb to not get caught almost every single time yeah you say that but there's a lot of shit that happens where people do get caught eventually yeah. and you realize oh like how long were you guys running this what's your favorite conspiracy theory that turned out to be true it's hard to say whether it turned out to be true but jfk is the yeah. biggest one and where did you land on that i landed on that it's very possible very possible that Lee Harvey Oswald was involved. It's very possible that other people were involved too. It's very possible that he shot at Kennedy and other people shot at Kennedy at the same time, and that he was a patsy yes. and he was put up. Like he was obviously involved in a lot of intelligence agency yeah. shenanigans. He went to Russia, he married a Russian woman, came back to the United States. He had been involved in all sorts of communist propaganda shit. He was d definitely not like an above ground guy. He was a shady dude. Yeah. And it's entirely possible that he was one person out of a plot to kill the president and they put it all on him and they had Jack Ruby shoot him. But everybody goes black and white on that. You either go Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or you go he was innocent and the CIA had him assassinated because he was trying to get rid of the CIA, which he was. I mean, Kennedy was trying to pull us out of Vietnam. He was trying to get rid of the CIA. He was trying to get rid of the uh, the um, uh, the the Federal Reserve. He, there was a lot of like super controversial ideas that Kennedy was trying to push forward, and someone killed him. I always go to the simple thing, which is why would Jack Ruby shoot him? Right. Yeah. Because a lot of people say, "Oh, he was just a patriot who got mad and happened to be there," but I, I, which maybe makes perfect sense. But if he was told to do it. It's such a suicide, end up in jail for the rest of your life mission. Yeah, it doesn't. Make, you know, to me, it falls. Things like that fall apart. There, that's what's they so do, funny. But it's also possible they told them, "Listen, just shoot him. We'll get you off. Yeah. We'll, we'll 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 find some sort of a way." Like, or they might have had something horrible on him. Yeah. Jack Ruby was clearly embedded in the mob. The mob was angry at Kennedy because they helped Kennedy win. They helped him win Illinois. Yes, you know, I mean, they helped him become the president. And there was absolute evidence that they were mad at him once he became president because then he started doing things that were against their interests. There was a lot of people pissed off at Kennedy. That's what's funny about the current Russia scandal, because it's a similar thing where there's just so much going on. I keep saying yeah. to people, you're not hearing this defense from all the Trump people. 
well, we met with Peru eight times. Right. We met with, with the English people. Like, they, they're just not having those meetings. Right. There's not all those connections with any other country but Russia. Not only that, this whole thing about Flynn and that the, the intelligence agencies were warning that Flynn was compromised and that the, he could be blackmailed by Russia. Like, they had things on him. What they had on him, we don't know, but they're yes. very convinced that there was evidence against Flynn and that the Trump administration knew this and they were still entertaining talks with him. And they're still bringing him on board. And what's fascinating is this world of international lobbyists like Paul yeah. Manafort. What are they doing? Did you, did you see this uh, thing where Paul Manafort's kids, someone hacked their phones and they had all these texts where they were talking about how horrible their dad was oh. and how he's responsible for p people getting killed. Oh, no. And there seems, and who knows if any of that's true, but there's a, an entire world of Americans going overseas and being involved in dirty politics and the work of uh governments like the ukraine that we don't have any clue about what, right. what that is yeah it's one of the last frontiers for really diabolical shit you know like russia is one of the last like what he had what he is what, what putin stands for is a, like one of the last brutal military dictators that's kind of in a costume yes he's in a costume as the president of russia but we all know like he murders people that oppose him he murders journalists he murders political candidates that are running against him. I mean, he's he's a terrifying guy. What do you think it means that that Trump just loves him? Just it's not good. He just he he Scary. admires. I think he admires the take no shit guy. Yeah, I think he does, and I think there's also the possibility that he feels that what Putin stands for is like he's a, this powerful superpower and it's better to be friends with him than it is to be enemies. Let's just cozy up. Hey, I wish I yes. could do a lot of the shit you do. A lot of people talk shit about me on Twitter. I wish I could have him killed. I mean, yeah. there, it's entirely possible that he thinks along those lines. Because I think it's probably from decades of Trump dealing with the mob in New York. Sure. And Atlantic City. And he probably developed a point of view about how you deal with evil people. Yeah. And how you have to make deals and how. Be friends with them. I think a lot of rich people think everyone doesn't understand this is how the world works. Right. This is how the sausage gets made. Ooh. Yeah. And, and that's why they do crazy stuff because they just go, everyone else is naive. Yeah. And just get me in a room with Putin. Get me a back channel. We'll figure it out. Like, right, the back channel with Kushner. Yeah. It's like sitting down with a mob, figuring out your price for cement. That's what he thinks the Putin back channel is. Like, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, we'll come up with And I think it seems like Trump like, likes the idea of that what you present is a lie and what you do in private is figuring out solutions and that that's how the world works. And right. That it's all full of shit. Yeah, and that, that is the way you get away with everything. That's how the world works. That's the justification. Hey, it's how the world works. Which is so different than Bush, who was religious and had this thought, we are going to go to other countries, we're going to take down these leaders, and they are going to find freedom, and we're all going to change for the positive when they don't have these dictators. Trump is an old school guy who's like, you need the dictators to keep all these assholes in line. Yeah. But meanwhile, he's kind of right. 
I mean, look what happens when you take the dictators out. You create this power vacuum, and the places are way more chaotic. Look at Libya, right? It's a yeah. failed state now. He got rid of Gaddafi. Everybody's happy. Hillary Clinton was on TV. They did an interview with her where she's cheering. She's, like, laughing. about We came. We saw. He died. Ha, ha, ha. Do you see that? Well, the yeah, off-the-air thing? I think that's what makes the world so impossible to manage right now. Right. Which is, you know... It's like we tried this this you know this approach of let's let's make these people a democracy but you can't force people to want a democracy. Also they're conditioned to being in a dictatorship. They've yes. lived that way their whole life and there's all these other people when you get rid of Gaddafi it doesn't mean he's the only piece of shit there. Yeah. There's a million other pieces of shit that are wondering how they get to that guy's position. Yeah. And he's keeping them down and murdering people and trying to keep, keep... And so their entire life, that's the paradigm they've operated under. They've watched this happen. They've seen this one central, brutal, murderous figure control everyone else. And when that's gone, it's not all kumbaya all of a sudden. Yeah. It creates this power vacuum. And then everybody's clamoring to see who takes that guy's spot. And now you have ISIS steps in and Libya yeah. is just straight chaos. And there seems to be... No solution to that. Almost no solution. Right? Because there's a, there's a massive religious tribal war happening where if we, if we didn't exist, they, were, they would just be fighting each other. Right. And that's what happened. That's what we were warned about with Iraq. Yeah. Like people that didn't understand Iraq, including Bush, did not understand if you take Saddam Hussein out of the picture, who is kind of secular, what you're left with is this Sunni Shia civil war. And you're going to have this crazy situation where these two different sects of Islam are going to kill each other. No one saw that coming. I mean, well, we... you know who did see that coming? Janine Garofalo. Did she? Yeah, because yeah, I remember watching her on CNN, and there was a there was a massive protest against going into Iraq before we went to war. And she said, "This is what's going to happen if we go there." And she laid that out. Well, she's a Noam Chomsky fan. Yeah, she, she said probably... th th these people are going to attack each other. We're going right. to create a mess that, that is going to be. We're going to open a Pandora's box, and there are no weapons of mass destruction, and we should wait, and we don't have enough information. And she really took a beating uh, for being a, a, in strong opposition to invading. Iraq. And every single thing that she said would happen in the next 10 years happened. And she wasn't the only person. There were plenty right. of people. I remember when 9-11 happened, Norman Mailer was on, uh, he was on Charlie Rose, like that week. And he said, this is exactly what's going to happen. And he explained the wars that would happen, where they would happen. He And then he said, and this is what's going to happen as a result of those wars, and, and laid out the mess that was created. And he said, you'll see, we, we do not have the strength to not take these steps. I should clarify, I don't know if Janine's a, a really a Noam Chomsky fan, but I know Choms Chomsky was saying that, like he was pretty adamant about that, like very early on. I, I, think, I just watched the Chomsky documentary on Netflix. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, and it was fascinating, and it had one simple idea, which also I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, which is just that our country, how it's set up, is is meant to protect people from the people with money, from the landowners, as it was more back then. And the basic theory is that that the people with the wealth and corporations are not served by democracy. If democracy is functioning, it is not in the favor of 
the wealthy or corporate interests. And so as a result, they always have to be against democracy because if, if, if Republicans don't have voter suppression, then everything is going to change in favor of what the population wants to do. So that there'll always be incentives for having less people vote and to, to making democracy not function the way that it should. Because clearly you could have voter motor ID where when you get your driver's license, you're registered for the whole country. You could have everyone in the country vote by mail. You could have everyone vote by computer. You could make it so you would have 80, 90% of people voting. But that goes against corporate interests. And so they fight to say uh, there's you know, all these fake votes when there, there isn't. And so that protects corporate interests. And it's, uh, it's a really interesting documentary uh, that just came up, I guess, in the last year. What's it called? Um, oh, we're about to find out. It's... See, I like that the computer's yeah, searching as we speak. There's a lot of things. people that are resisting <laughs> the idea of people voting online. But we bank online. It's ridiculous. Of course you'd be able to vote. Well, we certainly could get more people voting. It's fascinating that there's other countries like Russia trying to, to get into that. Oh, Requiem, Requiem for, for the American, American Dream. dream. Uh, yeah, it's, it's worth, it's, it's worth see, seeing. Mm. I mean, I, I don't really, you know, some of these things I don't have the strongest opinions on because... Well, it's pretty. It, it's it's very complicated, and it's like what you said. You just you never know what new mess you're creating. I was talking to this actor, right, um, who does a lot of charity work around the world. Very famous actor, and he said, "You know, I was working uh, on this project to dig wells in a community in Africa, and then we dug the wells, and it was incredible for this community. And then the neighboring community came and murdered everybody for the wells." He goes, "That's what it's like." trying to save people and to help people in the world. There's always something that results that you did not anticipate that makes it even more complicated. Yeah. And I feel it's that way with most issues. That you, you think it's this, but you've set off that. And, uh, and it takes, I, where I come down is you need an incredibly intelligent person to be in the middle of making these choices. And just generally with Trump, I don't think he's that smart. And I, I think that he is very, you know, a, a very self-involved narcissistic person and we can debate uh, choices, but it doesn't seem like the, like the person has the depth to make these calls. Well, I don't think anybody really is qualified to run 350 million people. I just yes. think it's a ridiculous proposition. Yeah. But I think you're definitely right. Also, he, he sets the tone for the mindset of the country. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it really is. We, we have this alpha male chimpanzee thing going on where the one, like Obama, love him or hate him, was a very articulate, really well-spoken, calm and measured guy. And sure. I think that's very good for America to have this yeah. guy who's smarter than anybody you know, and he's running the country. Like you feel yes. like, okay, well, this guy's obviously look. He, he he hardly ever stutters. He knows what he's talking about, and very moderate. Yeah, I mean, when you get down to it, what I find interesting is Obama was so moderate after the banking uh, issues. He didn't go after the bankers. He didn't send anyone to jail. He propped up those businesses. So the fact that like the banks so want to get rid of him, it makes me go, 
how much money is enough? Right. This guy's still basically <laughs> on your side. Hillary is basically still on your side. They were mad when their bonuses were minimalized. Yeah, Remember that? Exactly. They, After they the got collapse. bailed. They got billions of yes. dollars in bail money and they still wanted their bonuses. I have a contract. My contract says I got a bonus. They're just thinking about their house and their yacht. And the people got bonuses even though the economy collapsed, even though the economy collapsed as a direct result of the industry that they were involved in and the businesses they were running, they still got bonuses. It's really crazy. And what's interesting is that I guess most people, they don't connect that and they're not furious. Like right now, they're trying to get rid of the the Consumer Protection Bureau that keeps an eye on the banks. They're trying to defang them. And (laughs) you would think that people who want their guns would also say, but I would like consumer protection so you don't screw me on my credit card. But for some reason, because it doesn't line up with their team, they don't care about the issues that that would protect them. Isn't that super dangerous to have a right and a left? I mean, it's just... Because you always you go for independent candidates a lot, right? You're yes. looking for a third party. Yeah. And what prevents there from being a logical third party? Well, I think we had it with Ross Perot, right? I think Ross Perot was a logical third party, and it became very dangerous for people. And that's one of the reasons why the Commission for Presidential Debates changed the threshold. Like you back then, you needed 5% in the primary in order to be included in the debates. You put Ross Perot in the debate as an, uh, an independent and, and extremely wealthy man, who understands a lot about tax codes, understands a lot about foreign relations, and he became like a huge problem and most likely cost uh, Herbert Walker Bush his second term, right? Yes. And then that's why Clinton became president in the first place. And the threshold is what now to get in those debates? Well, I mean, Bernie Sanders is kind of an independent, right? I mean, it's obviously that his party's not on his side. We, we proved that with the DNC leaks. That they're they're conspiring against him. This is the, his actual own party, which is the same as changing the thresholds so of the third party candidate can't be in the debates, right? Right. It's just yeah. another version of that. Exactly. Yeah. It's another version of that. Well, then you find out the commission for presidential debates is a, it's it's not even a, a, a national thing. It's like a privately funded thing. It's a mm. it's a private company. Like they can choose like how they like what like oh let's make it fifteen percent you have to get fifteen percent and then they could just change it like yeah. that guy was a problem that guy was a pain in the ass let's change the threshold yeah what could go wrong yeah are you I mean there are people who feel like left and right are the same thing when you really get down to it or they're protecting the same interests in some way are you a believer in that or or not I think that. The most of the people that are on the left and most of the people on the right aren't even really thinking about whatever their party stands for. They are just like you said, they're sticking with the team, whether it's the left team or the right team. I think um, they I think radical ideologies, whether it's on the left or the right, they share a lot of common traits. And one of the things they share is this complete lack of objectivity lack of objectivity and lack of introspective thought in, in terms of like what their party is actually doing, what it means to be a liberal, what it means to be progressive, what it means to be Republican, what it means to be conservative. You just get into this groove like this is what we do. Fuck global warming. It's not real, you know, and then fuck this. And you can't be racist against a white person. Like you people have these r- ridiculous ideas on the left and on the right. They just dig their heels into the sand. They don't even think about it. And they just go with it because that's what the party says. And it's just a game. Yeah. Because after, the, after the election, I, I called a lot of politicians and a bunch of journalists who was just trying to get a sense of what's going on, how could I get involved, what was there to do. And it was really dispiriting. 
it was all reactive. Everyone was like, well, we have to see what they do to decide how to react. Mm. And I was like... So you were just super upset that Trump won. Yeah, I could see what was about to happen, and everything I was concerned about did happen. But they basically all said, well, you have to let him do his thing to then react and then have the population react to what he did. And did you have any concerns at all about Hillary? Well, I, I think uh, it reminded me a little bit of... Uh, I mean, I'm aware of what those issues are, but I do think... You know, there are large choices that just affect millions and hundreds of millions of people. Like, for instance, when a guy like Donald Trump says, we're not going to give money to any aid service around the world that says anything about abortion. Forget giving out abortions. If they hand out a pamphlet and it says that's an option, they don't get money. So if you're a country in Africa and there's only one AIDS aid service that like feeds starving people, but you also hand out a pamphlet on abortion, you don't get any of the money anymore. No, I agree. The, the, Trump's the, fucked up, and a lot of the things he does are fucked up. But did you have any problems at all with Hillary? Like, did you? Well, have... I, I had a big issue that she does not seem to understand uh, certain issues, like the speech, getting paid for the speeches. Right. That, that her blind spot, and she has revealed to still have it after the election, that like, uh, why did I go there? Because I got paid. Uh, you, you know, and I guess they've made, you know, over $100 million giving speeches, Bill and Hillary Clinton, which on one level you go, yeah, you know, people don't understand. I'm going to go do a, a, a stand-up corporate gig and it's crazy money. There's a crazy corporate speech money floating out yeah, there. Yeah, but wait a minute. But you, it, you but can't no, no, compare I'm not defending it. No, no, I'm not defending it yet. Right. I, I'm just saying she has a blind spot to what to the potential for corruption that people see in that and that she when you're when you're getting i mean well, one article said it was like 150 billion dollars between the two of them over like 10 years or so the fact that she doesn't even have a good game to to defend it that you can't go up against Trump and say he's corrupt while you're getting that much money from corporate interests like she never even saw how offensive it was that it's the kind of thing that Bernie Sanders doesn't do. So people go, well, at least he's not lining his pockets with that money. Hillary's basically saying, I, I line my pockets with that money, but I still have my own opinions. And the blind spot, at least to the outrage of it, is something that I, I, it threw me. But ultimately, the main choices that she wanted to make on a lot of issues are so much more in line with what I believe than Trump that although not a perfect candidate, you know, Trump is doing, you know, he's he's trying to get this health care thing through and doesn't seem that concerned about the amount of people that get kicked off. So I, I, I guess that there are certain things I sucked up about it. I didn't have a core thing that she's like a terrible person, but I think it, it's, it's pretty hard to get me to that place with people. I, I always need a little bit more proof of that. But certainly I think she represents someone who's dishonest, though. And that's a real problem when yes. you're going to have the leader of this incredible country and someone who's clearly dishonest and has been dishonest for a long time. Like when they talked to her about the emails, every interview she yeah. gave about it, she would give varying responses. A lot of them were dishonest. A lot of it was not based on facts. When she compared what she said, Comey said to her during the investigation versus what Comey was saying publicly, they were totally different things. Oh, I, I, I totally understand. And I think that there's a lot of politics that's really bad and really dirty. And I, I don't know enough on each specific thing to have a you know, a position on 
each thing that she said, but I do feel like there are people who are playing the game with service in mind, and maybe they're getting dirty or making mistakes with service in mind, and then there are people like Trump that I really don't understand why he's there, and his general philosophy um, is let the smart rich people get richer and something nice might happen for you, that he's so dishonest on a level that you can't compare to right. Hillary. It's just so, I mean, he admits that he's a liar. Uh, no, I'm fully yeah. with you on this, but, but I yes, think that I whenever people criticize Trump or whenever the cr people uh, talk about Hillary, rather, the f one of the first things they do is say Trump is worse. They, they instead yes. of like talking about how weird, like oh, I she's think not, it's weird. She's such a uh, non-ideal candidate. Like she was such a terrible candidate. She didn't yeah. believe in gay marriage until 2013. Yes. Yeah. I mean, 2013, she was publicly stating that gay marriage should be it should not be legal that a marriage a legal marriage should be between a man and a woman and clearly for only political reasons like yeah. she obviously had exactly. no issue with it at all and i agree with you i feel like there is a part of politics where people you know like say my position was evolving mm. on that when right. no your position wasn't evolving you just weren't fighting for what you actually believe right and, and obama took can't. a while to to make big moves on that right um but I still think at core, people like that are trying to figure out the system to help people. And I can't say I understand what Trump is in this for other than to be considered the, the greatest winner of all time. Yeah, I think that's probably exactly it. I, I don't think he really wanted to be president. I think he was doing it to sort of boost his brand. And along the way, he lost his television show. Right when he was doing all that build that wall shit and running, you know the the wall just got ten feet higher. Yeah, and NBC <laughs> was like, "Fuck you, man! We're canceling your show." And when they did that, I think he was like, "Oh yeah, well I'm really going to be fucking president now." And he kept going and going and going, yeah. and then he won. I mean, it seems to me like the whole thing was started almost as a publicity campaign, like a fun thing. What if his people said that there was a woman in publicity for him who left? She's the only person I know who left the campaign for this reason. I forgot her name, but it was very public. This wasn't a – it, it, she said it publicly. That when it started, the plan was to come in second, to help the brand, to get some fame, to make some statements about what he believes with no belief that it was possible that he – would do better than second in the Republican primaries. <laughs> and then the woman said, as it became clear that they had a really good shot of winning, she said, oh, I wasn't in it for this. And what I find fascinating to watch is Trump slowly getting comfortable with power. As, as he thinks he's figuring it out is interesting. Like, uh, I mean, even the Jared Kushner thing is kind of hilarious. You have this son-in-law. So now you have a blind spot that anyone in the world thinks it's weird that you give your son-in-law, a real estate developer, so much power. And he doesn't care at all because he doesn't trust anybody except like four people. So he's got to give them all the power. But he puts them in charge of fixing everything wrong with the infrastructure of government and the Middle East and two or three other things. And Trump doesn't understand how insane that appears and also how each task is impossible. <laughs> like, like this is my son-in-law. He's going to fix government and the Middle East. The, the the type of guy that doesn't realize, well, maybe there's one person for each of those jobs. Is that's where I just go, oh, he's full out crazy, because who would even do that to their son-in-law? Maybe his son-in-law is a pain in the ass. He's like, this fucking kid thinks he could do things. All right, I'll give you the worst job ever. Go fix government. Go fix the Middle East. I got it. 
I'm going to prove my worth to you, sir. And, and he's sitting there with there. his Ray-Ban sunglasses and his preppy outfit. I mean, it you know, it's become so comical. You know, it's a fascinating thing because it's both terrifying and comical. Like, if this was a movie, it's too broad and you wouldn't believe it. Right. You would just go, too much is happening in every scene, too many crazy thoughts. And what I guess, I guess what I wonder, and maybe you have an opinion about this. There are people who say, you know, it is the destruction of truth when you just make these lies up all day long that you change the definition of truth or even people's ability to decide what they think is the truth. Um, is that a philosophy that someone like Bannon is executing in the White House or something that happens randomly and, and, and is organic out of them? That's a real good question. I mean, there's always the concept absolute power corrupts absolutely. And knowing that you're in some sort of a competition, knowing that you are, uh, there's people trying to knock you down and you're in this position of power and you're shoring up your defenses. And I think there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on whenever you're the winning team. And you realize you're being attacked at all angles by this other team. And then you've got this guy who's the head guy who's a fucking maniac. He's got fake hair. He, he puts a spray tan on every day. He's out there. His, his eyes are white. No one tells him. His face is orange. He's saying insane shit. Yeah. He contradicts himself all the time. He lies all the time about numbers. He's always bragging about how well his ratings are and how shows do really well because everybody knows he watches the show. It's crazy stuff that you just don't expect from someone who's in the position of president of the United States. I think almost all bets are off at this point. Yeah. That's the one thing that I find promising about this, that people are so upset by how fucked up this it is this is that they're going to get politically active and that they're going to realize like there's some real holes in the system like the FBI like the president shouldn't just be able to fire the head of the FBI because you don't like the investigation like, of that's yourself insane and 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 Sessions recuse himself but he can fire the guy investigating himself insane it's all insane yeah. but I, I guess the, what my fear would be is that when it's, it, it just swings back the other way, like you could just swing left, right, right. left, right. But yeah. are any institutional pro protections ever put in place because it just swings back and forth? Like for instance, say, like we don't, you know, I, I'm not an expert in healthcare, but let's assume it, it's just a shit storm, right? right? And in, in a year or two, whatever, millions of people are losing their healthcare. And every day you're just hearing about hundreds of people who have cancer who can't pay for their medicine. What happens in this country? Do people get mad at the Republicans? Do they vote them out? Or to somehow not enough sick people, there's not enough sick people to make the change? I think there's so many issues. There's so many in issues that, like, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at them taking the teeth out of the EPA, which is what they've done? Yeah. The Environmental Protection Agency is fucked now. Yeah. I mean, they're removing the satellites that track global warming. They're, 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 they're stopping funding for all these different initiatives and all these different programs and all these different studies. They're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on with the plan. They're like, that, 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 stop all that. What we really need is Enron and Exxon and all yes. these different companies, big conglomerates, big corporations. We need to drill. We need to drill. We need to frack. We need to go over where, you know, Alaska and mm -hmm. we're in the Antarctica, get in that ground, pull that oil out. And, and, 
it's it that's that's scary and then you hear the healthcare shit well well that's scary too and then you hear the russian shit well that's fucking scary In north korea oh that's scary there's so many different things to be scared about i don't think people who don't have cancer or don't have diseases are really considering all this healthcare stuff i think it's one of those things that happens once you have a health issue then you realize how fucked the system is and especially if sure. you don't have the money to take care of it you're like wow like our medical system in this country is not it's not the best we have the best doctors we certainly have the best surgeons and we have some pretty amazing innovative medicine but when it comes to the the, the system itself for like when you find out how much people have to pay oh, when they crazy. go to the doctor and how about you you have insurance well your insurance only covers so much you still have to pay more sure my, my mom died of ovarian cancer and I just remember going through those bills and there was a lot of experimental medicine that potentially could save her, and you didn't know if insurance would say this is the type of approach that they're willing to pay for. Right. And anything you needed to do, you'd have to prove you needed it. Someone says you needed a, you know, a new CAT scan, and you've had two that year. You might have to go to war to say why you need it now. Right. And uh, I- Number I, crunchers. I'm just always fascinated that it doesn't line up for people. Like, say you love the outdoors and you love hunting. Well, don't you love the environment? Right. And so why are you not really pissed? Or Trump's going to build a wall and he's going to take a lot of people's land away to build the wall. Well, I thought that was the big issue for all of these militia groups. Don't mess with our land. Yeah. And so- Is that what he's going to do? He's going to take land away to well, build the wall? The only way to build the wall in Get a lot of places- land. A lot of private lands. I mean, it's a, it's a, that's a jagged path. To when you're building that wall and you have to, you know, you have to take away a lot of people's land to to pull that off. Uh, so that's what scares me the most about America is there's an illogic to people's opinions. I think there's too many variables. I think there's too many things to, for people to consider. And I think people work all day and then they have hobbies and families and things they enjoy doing and they don't have the time. To really sit, I mean, each one of those issues would require a full-time job all day long, investigating yeah, it, exactly. debating it, discussing it, whether yeah. it's Flynn's ties to Russia or what Session knows and how many times did he speak to the Russians or what did, what did Jared Kushner actually do in the Middle East? Like, what is he doing in the overall? Exactly. Each one of those is a full-time job. Yeah. What is he saying to Netanyahu alone in the room? How do they let him do that? <laughs> He looks like such a dork. Did you see the pictures of him with the bulletproof vest on overseas and he's hanging around with the actual soldiers and he's sitting there with his Ray-Bans on? His... And his masking tape with his name <laughs> magic markered on it. And I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a comedy, it, man. I have to say, as a creative person, who's going to be at the Wilbur? Oh, uh, when, when are you at the Wilbur? When am I get the Wilbur? This is called the mid-show uh, plug, everybody. Uh, the Wilbur in Boston... Uh, just added a late show for charity for the after-school programs for Boston Arts. July 24th, thewilbur.com. One of my favorite theaters in the world. The best. And the best crowds. Amazing. It's incredible, and it feels like you're in a club. There's a thousand people in there, but they're all in, in three tiers. Yeah. And so it's very short. It's like three 300-seat comedy clubs jammed in there together. Yeah, it's the perfect layout for comedy. It really is. And then I'll be in uh, Providence, Rhode Island at the Columbus Theater. Uh, July 25th, and at the Ridgefield Playhouse in Ridgefield, Connecticut, July 23rd. And I'm, I'm taping my special in Montreal at the Just for Last Festival because they seem to be amused by me there. Oh, that's an amazing place to do it. At the festival? You at the festival, yeah. How many shows are you going to do? I'm doing five shows. I'm taping four of them. Oh, that's a good move. 
I like that. I like when I hear that. I hate when I hear someone taping one show. No, no. I, I, I could panic and ruin one show. I could, I could actually, if I did only two shows, I could panic the first show and then go, okay, now I only have one show to get it and panic again. Who are you doing your special for? Uh, for Netflix. Oh, yeah. That's you know, the way to go. It was my turn. Nice. And so, <laughs> and I haven't done something like that since basically the HBO Young Comedian special in 1992. With Ray Romano, the guy who got fired, so you could uh, have your career. No, he didn't. He got, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> he got fired so somebody else could take it, and then that guy fired, and I got. Oh, who was I that? Took his. I don't know. Who was the in between? Some guy. guy was on the pilot. There was a guy on the pilot that was yeah. not Ray. Oh, Ray wow. got fired, and another guy took his spot, and then that guy fired, and I took that guy's spot. Well, Paul Sims was vicious. Vicious. He was going to get it done fuck. right. I was around a, a little bit of in the the news radio days, just as a friend of Paul's and Andy Dick's, and that show is a show that holds up and is really funny yeah well i was just happy that there was a buffer between me and ray because i love ray yeah i would not have wanted to be the guy that takes ray's job i think ray is one of the first people to tell you he probably was not prepared as an actor at that exact moment what well, was the wrong gig for him you yeah. know the, the everybody loves raymond was the perfect gig yes. let him write for himself and let him sure. you know figure it all out and become obsessed with it He's such a good guy, too. Oh, he's the best. Ray Romano is like one of the nicest people I've ever met. And so good in our movie, The Big Sick. Honestly, the dream part, so funny, so real, very... I mean, it's the culmination of everything he's learned as an actor yeah. and, a, and, a, and a person. Uh, so I, I'm very excited about Remember that. Remember he was doing that TBS thing? He was doing like a drama for a while? Yeah, yeah, men of a certain age. Bunch of d that... depressed dudes, that's what yeah. I called it. Bunch of depressed dudes. <laughs> I called it the Judd Apatow story, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he's he's so he's so good. He was on Parenthood for a while, um, and I've gotten to spend a little time with him because of this movie. But it is funny that we were on the Young Comedian special in 1992. That is amazing, and now you're back at it. And now, uh, now I'm back doing so it again. You you've done stand up now for three years. Since yeah, since uh, 2014. Three years straight. Yeah. yeah. And then like what like how many years in were you like I think I've got a special here. They asked me to do it a year ago, and I said, okay, give me one more year. Mm. So That's very honest of you. Well, you know, everybody's so good. I mean, I was performing the other night in the original room, and you were in the main room, and I could hear the place rocking from the stage of the original room. <laughs> Maybe my crowd was too quiet that I could hear you. I could hear your laughs and you just, you know, talking loud. And 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 so I always think, wow, people are so good right now. People people are masters at this. And I I can't be mediocre at it. I mean, I'm in the same business as you and Maria Bamford and Louis C.K. and Hannibal, and and I have to be able to be proud of what I'm doing. So yeah, Joey Diaz and Bill Burr. Sure. This is this is a different time. Oh, this, Burr. There's so many murderers out there right now. Yeah, I mean, I was watching Burr. I did a Largo show that he was on, and I was just watching him from the side of the stage, and just his level of intensity is so, it, you know, in a weird way, it's so professional. And I noticed it with you the other night, too, that you could get yourself in that state where you care so much and you're so passionate and it re requires so much energy and focus to get to that place, to perform with that passion. 
it's just really impressive because like for me i can just get tired and start staring at my shoes <laughs> i just get tired halfway through like oh i, get I just felt a wave of like like after you eat a big meal and you just get tired like it just hits you eight minutes in. <laughs> well, what i'm always trying to accomplish is trying to get out whatever i'm trying to talk about with the most power that i can like the most like what's the best way to do it is the best way to do it slow and calm and let people soak in the idea or is the best way to do it to be intense and fo like what what is like the most entertaining way that I would be engaging this material yeah. and figure whatever that is and, and fuck with it and move it around and bring it up and bring it down. And that's one of the things where the store is such a great place to focus on that kind of stuff because there's so many killers and because yeah. the standards are so high that you have to really, you really have to be on point. And it's packed. Every night. You go to the comedy store, <laughs> the main room, which used to just be desolate like four years ago. It's sold out like it's Vegas every night. Every night I walk in there, I'm like, I got some new jokes. I'm like, can I do, how many new jokes can I do when this is a big, sold out, excited crowd? Yeah, we have to change the face of comedy in LA now. I mean, comedy in LA is a different thing now, over the yeah. last few years. It's also funny how a place like the comedy store, you know, our friend uh, Adam uh, Egat, who, who books it, just one guy with good taste booking the club well. And suddenly, everyone in town wants to run to that club again. Yeah, Both comedians the cool and the audience, because Adam does such a good job and booking it. opening up that back bar where you gave us a place where the public can't go and the comics can go and hang out, that was giant, where there was a place to chill and yeah. hang out. People were like, you'd be sitting there with Ron White, well, I'm on in five, see you boys. <laughs> and he'd go out there and do a set, then Diaz would come back, and all these different yeah. people are hanging out there. You're like, wow, like this place is like... Something special like they they made changes they figured things out. They did things differently Yeah, I, I missed just hanging out with comics when I wasn't doing stand-up. I was like I don't know anybody anymore <laughs> Like I literally don't know anybody right. just the idea of being a part of that community And it is a community of people that are really smart, you know, really really funny and I, I think generally an incredibly supportive community to each other. Yes, yeah, well, I think especially now there's so many opportunities. I don't think people feel like as starved. I think there was a famine mentality that was going on way back in the day when it was everybody competing for Tonight Show spots, yeah. and then every now and then someone got an HBO special, and that was holy shit. There was not that many HBO specials. But other than that, you had to do talk shows, and you had to do like a few minutes on a talk show, or you, you know maybe you were like a Richard Jenny who thrived in that format, and you could do 30 Tonight Show things and then fill up arenas because of that. But for most people, it was a, a scratch and claw environment, yeah. and people were fighting to try to get a sitcom and fighting to try to get movie roles and all these. There was not a lot, but now because of the internet, because of YouTube, because of social media, and then a Netflix, which was giant. There's so much opportunity, like, yeah. and the comedians have also found way more of an audience. There's way more audience out there because people realize, like, oh, look, Sarah Silverman has a new Netflix special. Oh, look, Jim Jeffries has a new Netflix special. Oh, look, Bill Burr has a new Netflix special. And just keeps going and going and going and going and going. It's like, it's un almost unstoppable. And I remember when I was a kid, there was nothing. It was just like Robert Klein would have a special every couple every of years. Every now and then. George Carlin every couple of years. They didn't give the hours to many people. And there were so many people that probably could have done a Netflix special back then. Sure. And they didn't have the audience. They never got the shot. And, you know, and they just sort of stayed at a certain state in their career forever. Yeah. You know, it's just, this is an amazing, amazing time for it. Yeah. And it's good. I mean, I watch people. I'm like, God damn, that's, people are 
fucking great. <laughs> I mean, I really like watch people. I was watching Ray Romano the other night. His act was just monstrous. Yeah, he was so strong. Have you uh, seen Andrew Santino at the store? Oh yeah, fuck. I'm that great guy's on that good. show. Uh, I'm yeah. right up here. Like, yeah. I mean, so good. I, I, it's uh, it's exciting. I can't think about it too much because sometimes I think if there's so many people, why do it? But I'm trying to make it very much about the audience and me and that, you know because I make movies and do TV, that my stand-up career really is just about getting to hang out with everybody and my relationship with that particular crowd that night. Like, I don't need it to pay the rent, so I could do it from a very pure place because it's just about these interactions. That's great. You know, and so, and that frees me up to not be nervous, and then I could be a little more daring because it's not going to going to sink me if anything goes wrong. Do you think that it enhances your ability to make movies? Does it enhance your perspective oh, yeah. or your oh, sense yeah. of funny? I think that when you don't talk directly to the crowd, you get stale as to what people are thinking about. You know, I can tell, I don't know, just when I bring up certain topics, just what people's concerns are. And it happens unconsciously. Oh, this is what people find funny these days. This is what people are freaking out about this is what people are happy about and when you don't do it you're just alone in a room with your editor yeah you're just sitting in it you're sitting with one dude for two years and i think uh i also think you're connecting to some you know whatever you're, you're the creativity of the universe because you're in spaces with a lot of people with a lot of other creative people and you're hooking into creativity on some level i've always wondered how comedy writers who don't do stand-up can do it I've always wondered, like, how do they know it's funny? Like, how do they know what's they're guessing? Well, it's weird to write jokes, make a movie, and then two years later find out if they're funny. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> That's why people say, oh, why do you have so much improv? Because I don't want to be in an editing room, put in the joke I wrote, realize it sucks, and then go, do we have any other jokes? And the editor says, no. Ooh. So I always want, like, I it, with any scene, I always go, well, that's where the joke's supposed to be. Here's my favorite. Let's get eight more, and then we'll move on. I never think, like when there's people like the Coen brothers, and it's verbatim. You can't change a comma when they shoot it. Is that what it, go, what it, it is with them? Yeah, it's like a play. And I respect it, but I do not have the courage to assume when I hit editing that I am such a genius that I will not have fucked up any of this in the writing. They have a weird part. kind of comedy, though. Their comedy is so quirky and fascinating. Yeah. Like, and... I guess maybe it's just that that purity of vision that they have sure. in sticking to that script. And a lot of people do that. I mean, uh, Noah Baumbach does that. You know, you can't change any of it. But I always think, I don't know, if uh, if an actor's on a set, Ray Romano's on the set of The Big Sick, and he's talking about his feelings, and he has the scene. If I go, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the Michael Showalter directed that movie. Hey, let let him do another one. Let's just let him change it. Just but tell him to hit the same idea. Right. Half the time he beats the joke. Half yeah. the time. Yeah. If you have the right cast. Well, that was what Sims did on uh, news radio. He let everybody just come up with better lines. It was a yeah. big part of why the show worked so well. It's like we all felt really invested in the, the creative process. Yeah. And that's so rare. And that's, I remember Shanling would do that on uh, the Larry Sanders show. They would rehearse for several days. And in that rehearsal, people were allowed to screw around. And yeah. if something good came up, Gary would would write it down, and Hartman was the funniest. Phil yeah. Hartman really was, you know, when you really make the list of the funniest people of all time, he's just so high up 
on that list. It was yeah. a remarkable thing. I would go to tapings of that show and SNL tapings. And at one point I was talking about writing an HBO special with him. And I don't know if there's ever been anyone more talented in more ways than him. No, he was brilliant. He he really was incredibly disciplined, too. When I, when I was on the set with him, he was becoming a pilot. Yeah. And so he was uh, in the middle of scenes. He would be reading flight books <laughs> and reading books on aviation yeah. and, and writing notes and taking notes. His He was so organized. Like his scripts, he would put them all in a binder. He would take the script immediately. He would put a three punch, put it in the binder, and he would have tabs for each of his scenes. And each tab had a different color. This is scene one, scene yeah. two. And he would have everything set up like that and have his lines highlighted. And he would practice them and have them down to like a razor sharp. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. He was a really, really, really interesting guy. Uh, very unique. I don't think I've ever met anybody like him. Because he also came out of, uh, he was a designer. He Graphic designed, artist. Yeah. yeah. Did album covers and stuff. And and he said that he got Saturday Night Live because he went in for the audition and he was retiring because his career hadn't worked out the way he wanted it to. And then someone said, do you want to go in for SNL? And he was so ready to be done that he had an amazing audition because he assumed he wouldn't get it. And basically it was like, fuck this business. And then that's the moment when he was his purest, funniest self and just got it. Wow. Interesting guy, man. He was um, blackmailed while we were on the show. And uh, while we were on the show, he and his wife actually had went to a strip club. And this was like 1997, 97, 98, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. So uh, this some asshole at a strip club got a video camera, brought in a video camera, and filmed like a fucking video camera back then. Like you had to large. carry it. <laughs> and he filmed Phil and his wife at a strip club laughing, just having a couple of drinks. And I think Phil got a lap dance and his wife got a lap yeah. dance. And then they left. And he, this guy, um, put a copy of this videotape in an envelope and nailed it to Phil's garage door. Oh, fuck. With a note saying that's that like I, Letterman's thing. It was scary shit. Yeah, but it was different because Letterman's thing was someone he knew, and yeah. this was not a guy he knew. And this is a guy who found out where Phil lived and said, "I'm going to get this to uh, all of the advertisers that you know you do commercials with, and all the people that you do films with, and I'm going to ruin your career unless you give me money. Call me at this number." The guy left his fucking number, so Phil calls the guy, records the thing, and did it in the room with me. And he goes, I'm going to call the guy now. I'm going to call the guy now. Oh, and we shut. And he, he goes, hey, buddy, what's going on? Listen, I understand what you're saying, but you got to realize, like, I don't have as much money as you think I do. And, I mean, this is, I mean, I don't want the tape getting out, but, I mean, you're making it out like it's a bigger deal than it is. And the guy was like, look, I'm, I'm telling you and this and that. And the guy's like, look. I'm willing to work with you. Let's just come to a reasonable, reasonable number. So they come to this reasonable number, and this whole time where he's doing this, he's recording this, and he gets it to this private investigator guy. And then this asshole meets the private investigator thinking he's going to meet Phil and get paid, and this private investigator guy scares the fucking shit out of him and threatens his life and you know takes his wallet from him takes photos of his you know his address and you know and he basically says don't ever contact him again or your life will radically change in a horrible way and the guy disappeared wow. but it was weird to be in the room with him when feels like close the door close the door i'm gonna call him he's oh like wiping God. his hands that stuff. sounds like an anthony pelicano special uh exactly what we're talking about <laughs> yeah that's exactly what we're talking about 
That's a, that's a Ray Donovan shit. Yeah, it's Ray Donovan shit. It was weird. It was weird to be there for that to see like, and it's also to see like that someone would like try to weasel in on him. Phil was just such a nice guy. Just he knew this dude that was like a carpenter, and the guy did some work with him. The guy called him out. This halt called him horrible sob story you know we're gonna lose our house and this and that i just you know just give me a little bit of a loan and okay so phil gives him like twenty five thousand dollars just gives this guy and then the guy calls him three months later and he asks for another 30 and then phil's like what the fuck man (laughs) you know like he was just almost too nice that's about how it usually goes with that it is, yeah. You never lend someone money and then they go, you know what? You solved all my problems no. and now I'm fine and here's the money back. It just Did you ever lend anybody money? Oh, yeah, yeah. Did and anybody it, ever pay you back? Yes. I, 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 I always tell this story just because it's funny. My friend Dave Raff, who manages Pete Holmes, at some point was like transitioning and starting his own management company and asked me for some money. Not much, but the only guy who ever paid me back and quickly. Yeah, and uh, that makes sense. And, and 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 is a great man, and is producing my Netflix special. Ah, well, that works. <laughs> but the only guy to ever do what he said he was going to do. Uh, yeah, it's always these people that have, dude. Once this happens, then this is going to happen. And I'm yeah. going to be making this amount of money, and don't yeah. worry about it. It's all going to come. But I just need a little right now. It never happens. Well, someone said people. the second people ask for money, they they resent you, and so even if you give people money. They're mad that they had to ask, and they kind of hate you because you, you they had to ask you. Ooh, that's interesting. Which which I, I, I which is certainly what you feel. Well, there's also the people that think that the way to make it is to get somebody else to get you through. Mm-hmm. Like you gotta you gotta call on favors. You gotta you gotta have connections. You gotta get your way through that way. That that's yeah. the way to do it. Somebody gave you a break, man. You need to give me a break. Somebody gave you a break. Like it's just that mentality exactly. is so wrong. Oh yeah, they were. I mean, one thing I'm proud of in my career is there really was. I had no ins at all. You know, I just you know my parents got divorced. They were both bankrupt. I started interviewing comedians for my high school radio station. At some point, I got Jamie Masada from the uh, Laugh Factory, who owns the Laugh Factory. He had a magazine in the '80s, and he printed an interview I did with David Brenner. And I think I did another one with Henny Youngman. Then when I moved here in 85, uh, I tried to get spots at this Laugh Factory, and it was still hard to get up there. But I didn't know anybody. And the person who really hooked me up was Sammy Shore. Wow. Now, Sammy Shore started the comedy store. Then he got divorced, and Mitzi took it over and made it the great place it is. But he started a comedy room in Marina Del Rey called Sammy's by the Shore in the back of a fish restaurant. And... He let me book it, and in return, I was allowed to go on. Oh. And maybe I got 40 bucks a week. And that's how I got stage time for the, for the first year when I didn't know what I was doing. I would book that club, which also gave me an excuse to call all the comics who I admired. And, and it's funny. Like, there's those people at a key moment open the door for you. But it's not because you knew them. It's just because you're willing to put in all the work somehow. Right, right. That's interesting, man. Sammy's by the shore. I never heard about that one. Do you remember the Valley Improv? They had one in, in the Hilton in Sherman Oaks. No, I wasn't around for that. And then what this, year was that? This was like late 80s. I wasn't here until 94. Oh, yeah, late 80s. And this guy, Joe Drew, just the manager, great young guy. I don't know where he is. 
he used to say to me, Judd, come in, wait around. If someone doesn't show up, I'll put you up. And I was like 19 years old, and I would wait there all night, every night, thrilled to talk to everyone, because that's what right when Sandler moved to town and David Spade and, and Schneider, and that's when I first met everybody, and that guy would put me on. And, you know, that's the funny thing about a career. It's two or three people who, who change everything for you. There's this woman, Mary Parent, who was uh, one of the heads of Universal, and I, was, I sold her the 40-year-old virgin, and she said, Judd, the second you hand in the script, I'm going to green light it. I wow. so believe in this idea and you and Steve. And I literally faxed her, like, page 90 to 108, and then she called and said, okay, start prepping. Fax. Yeah, faxed it. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Now, Joe, here's my question for you. Okay. Let's, let's talk my workout for okay. a second. Let's talk my... Uh, Omega brain. Alpha, Alpha brain? brain. Alpha brain. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pete Holmes turned me on to the Alpha brain. And oddly, uh, it completely works. 100%. And um, it's all based on science. I mean, we have double blind placebo controlled yeah. studies. It's not something we invented in terms of like the, the actual nutrients and their, their response to human neurotransmitters, it's all been documented. People have known about nootropics for a long time now. And I always feel like I'm the perfect test case for a product like that because most days I go in a room with 11 writers in the morning. I'm as tired and as foggy as you can be. I do not drink coffee, so I don't... You don't drink coffee at all? I just don't like it, so I just... The only coffee I like is ice-blended mochas, which is all sugar. Right. So I avoid it. Uh, and when I, uh, started taking that, I would completely wake up and be sharp without like some weird caffeine buzz or sick from it or w whatever. And I would see it every day. Like, wow, I was funny as hell for the last two and a half hours. And I did not start in that place. So I'm fascinated by your general program like what you're doing all day with all this stuff like what's what's the current joe program well i'm always doing something you know and in terms of like diet you mean or in terms of like what's the exercise? workout what's the diet what's the meditation what's the main tenets of your day well my workout i schedule every sunday i schedule everything that i'm going to do during the week I say, I have to do yoga two times this week. I have to lift weights three times this week. I have to run twice this week. And however I fit that in, I fit that in. But I owe those things. Okay. So I have to get those things in. The only exceptions are injuries and sickness. So mm -hmm. those that that's the, the, the schedule. And then on top of that, uh, there's other things that I enjoy doing. Kickboxing, jujitsu, work those yes. in when I can. Then um, diet. The diet is pretty strict in terms of like no bread, very few carbs, um, no sugar, no bullshit. Like yeah. healthy food, a lot of vegetables, mm -hmm. a lot of meat, game meat mostly, yes. wild game. Like, and I take vitamin supplements every day. I take uh, multivitamins, I take probiotics, I take uh, vitamin B12 and D and a lot of different things. Yeah. I just, um, I do everything that I can to put my body and my brain in a good place so that I'm, I'm, I'm keeping my engine smooth. I'm changing my oil. I'm changing my spark plugs. I'm making sure that it's operating. I mean, it's not going to be perfect, but the, yeah. I know that I've done my best to keep it working the best that it can. And who's the person that advises you on like nutrition? 
Is there a guy? Is no. there a woman? Um, Who to- taught you how to do it? How do you do it? Well, there's a ton of people that I've used as a resource. Um, there's a woman that I have on the podcast on a regular basis. Her name is Dr. Rhonda Patrick, and she's probably the best resource. Like, I sent her something the other day on some new um, some new study on saturated fats. Like, whenever I there's some sort of an issue, there's a new study on cryotherapy or saunas. Like, uh, the saunas are incredibly effective. I don't know yeah. if you ever you we have just a sauna. Got one. Oh, so, like so with huge the, with the UV rays or what is it? The, um, the, what, what is it called? Not ultraviolet. Um, Infrared. Infrared, thank Infrared, you. yes, yes. Yeah. We just got one of those. Saunas are giant. You know, the raising of the body temperature like that and uh, the heat shock proteins, incredibly beneficial to your body. There was a study that they put out recently that showed a 40% decrease in mortality from all causes due to people who take regular sauna. Like, it just literally keeps your body healthier. Yeah, wow. Like, having that massive exposure to heat and the, your body producing these heat shock proteins, it just it, it reduces inflammation. It just... It helps in so many different areas for people. And it's just, you know, sit down in the hot room. It's really good for your body. Regular is how many times a week? Um, for a sauna, yeah. I think they were saying four times a week. Wow. But, I mean, how hard is that, man? Just force yourself to sit in it. I mean, yeah. if you have it at home in particular sure. or if, if at your gym, just go there and sit in that fucker for 15 minutes. It doesn't take long. Well, I'm going to have to get all this written out. I'm gonna. How about this? I do everything you do. <laughs> we make that a special. It's the Judd Does Joe's Programs. You have to year. build up. Oh, yeah. You have to build I gotta up bulk to up. That. I got well I may have Not already bulked bulk up. up. I mean build up like your your joints and all that stuff. It's gotta yeah. get used to that kind of a pounding. Yeah. There's a lot a lot of shit is gonna be happening if you want to do everything I do. So I can't just do twelve pounds on a free weight. You don't you don't want you I mean it's not even <laughs> You don't. You're not gonna want to do everything I do. Yes. Like I have a friend who runs ultra marathons, and mm-hmm. I just started running recently within the last couple of months. I'm not running a fucking ultra marathon. Yeah. I'm not doing everything. <laughs> he, hey, I'll do everything you do. I would break. It would break my feet. It would yeah. break my knees. Yeah. You got to just build up. You got to have time too. Yes. There's something about you know when you run TV shows, it's all freaking day every day. So people say, when do you work out? I'm like, there's no time. Yeah. What am I gonna wake up at five in the morning and put in two and a half hours? I gotta drive my kids to school at seven forty. That's what, what, one thing. You don't need two and a half hours. Yeah. You can get a great workout in in 40 minutes, and that's all you need for the whole day, 100%. Yes. You really can, especially if you run. Like, I run hills, mm-hmm. and um, I can get it done in a half an hour. Like, a fucking brutal workout, a two-mile yeah. brutal hill climbing workout in a half hour. I'm exhausted. Yeah. You know, this idea of time. Like, how much time did you put in today? Like, you could work out in a bullshit manner for two hours and not get nearly as much done as you can for a half hour hard just yeah. running. Yeah. Or like interval training. Yeah. Yeah. Sprints and then relax and then sprints yeah. again. But uh, I just think being active and doing something on a daily basis, forcing your body to get used to the fact that it's going to constantly being, be working, yeah. constantly being under stress. Yes. And then it just it gives you more energy. It's like you, you have more of a gas tank. You have more enthusiasm for things. That's the scary part about Trump. His theory on exercise is <laughs> you only have so much energy per day, and he thinks that exercise uses it up. Yeah. And so he doesn't ever exercise. Yeah. That's well, got to come back at him at some point. Well, he's not he's fucking 70. I mean, yeah. how is it not come back at him already? Yeah. But he also, I mean, he's, he's not mitigating his stress. 
That's part of it is your perspective enhancing. Yeah. For me, the most important thing about, I don't think, maybe not the most important thing, but one of the best things about exercise is that it gives me a perspective, mm-hmm. a better, a more enhanced perspective, because I'm not coming at it from a stressful body. Like, my body's not tense. So I can come at things in a calm way. I've drained all the bullshit out of my That's body. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and are you doing meditation, or what are you doing in that way? I have a sensory deprivation tank. Yeah. So I do most of my meditation in that. You do an alternate climb states. in. Yeah, I climb in and I float. Yeah, I love that. That's I, one of my favorite things. You ever do it? Uh, no, I can. You n- must imagine. You must, especially I, for you because you're working on things all the time. Like yeah. if you go in there with an idea, like I'll go in there with a bit. Like I got this bit that I'm working on right now that's kind of complicated, and uh, sometimes I'll just be sitting there staring at the wall, just thinking about this one bit because I'm trying to figure out how to how to structure it. It's a super complicated bit. And I'll go in that tank, and I'll just sit there for an hour, and I'll just try to work out this bit, try to figure out if there are other angles to it, there's other ways to come at it. The only confusing thing is when I have an idea in the tank, and it seems like, I got it, I got to get out of the tank, and then exactly. I got to write things down. And <laughs> no, you need a special pad in the tank. I think I need a voice-activated recorder. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's what I need, where I can just talk. Yeah. Okay, so I need the tank. You need I, a tank. I, I have the spa. You have a spa. Um, I need a hill to run on. Hills are good. I got. I need more of my Onnit products. Do you lift weights at all? Uh, no. It's I, a good I mean, idea to do a little bit of something just yeah. to keep your body strong. It's like yeah. as you get older, your body atrophies, and there's just no way around it, especially if you're not using it. And yeah. the only way to keep it from atrophying is to make sure that you put it under stress. You have to lift weights. That's the only way. It yeah. keeps your bone density, keeps your tendon strength, your muscle strength. There's no other way, you know, and otherwise you just get injuries. People get back injuries and arm injuries and shit just starts falling apart on you. See, I've had no injuries due to not doing anything. <laughs> that's how I've been protecting my, my, my body. But yes, I do know that that's the thing to do. I remember I always heard about Clint Eastwood doing that. And I met Clint Eastwood when he was like 80. And I know he's like, he lifts heavyweights. That's his thing. It's like heavyweights. And he was like a truck at 80. Yeah. And so, uh, but I don't like uh, lifting things. <laughs> I don't even like counting. Well, I don't you know even like counting. <laughs> Hire a trainer. Yeah. You know, get someone to devise a program. Yeah. Have them come to you, work you out. You don't have to do shit. You just show up, you know, like you could do it in your house. They show up at 6 a.m. or whenever it is and they're like, come on, Judd, I got you for the next 45 minutes. And you're like, all right, here we go. And oh, just it's make... tough when you hate that stuff. Ah. It really is tough. When you haven't like built your brain to love it. I've been playing a lot of tennis lately as a way to wake, great. wake up. And uh, But I do know that I need to do it. But, man, it is it, when you're like of the mindset that when the trainer comes, you want to punch him in the face, <laughs> it, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing. Uh, and a lot of it is that being a writer, your, your day becomes about waking up and engaging your brain all day. And so you just like look at writers and you eat Chinese food and you're kicking stuff around. And it's like developing the wrong muscle your whole life, or at least not only one muscle. And uh, n- I, I know that I have to transition into that, but it is, it is a tough one. But I think I, it's I, beneficial I, to your writing, though. It is. It 100% is. I write better after I do anything. And what I do do is I walk really fast around my neighborhood in circles for like 45 minutes every day. They say that you should do that after you write. They say when you write, yes. one of the things you should do is go over what you wrote by going on a walk. 
because it's not enough where you're so worn out that you're occupied by the like it's not like you're running yes. where you're exhausted you're occupied by the activity because I feel like when I'm running hard especially when I do my hill sprints I'm not thinking about shit other than left foot right yeah. foot left foot right foot don't fall down keep going you're almost at the hill almost at the top keep going keep going keep going I'm not thinking about anything else but when I walk I can think about all kinds of shit. So I walk my dog around the neighborhood a lot of times after yeah. I write. I just take him. We go for a walk. Yeah, and that's like a walking meditation. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm, I'm trying to read a lot. Of, like, And you guys talk about it sometimes. I heard you talking about it with Russell Brand, just you know, quantum physics and trying to figure out how to quiet my brain and to tune into what is left to do to not be crazy. Mm. And some of that is exercise. What so, is left to do to not be crazy? Exactly. Because <laughs> I'm such a like a pop, I'm such a like pop psychology junkie. Yeah, I read that stuff all day long. But lately, I've been reading a little more like that. You know, the Joe Dispenza is that his name? Joe Dispenza. Yeah, but it's you know it's just it's it's like a quantum physics theory that basically you get into a, a pattern of how you feel. And it's in your cells. So if you're a depressed person, like your cells are depressed. And if you get in a good mood, your cells try to get you back to depression because you've conditioned yourself to be in a certain mood all the time physically. And it affects your whole body and that you can make a choice to change how you are physically by choosing to be in a certain mood and meditating about a certain mood and that you could change how your body reacts physically so it doesn't want to keep you in the same mental state you're used to being in. Mm. Does that make any sense? It does, sort of, I guess. I'm always real cautious about what what causes depression and what makes people depressed and what, you know, I don't, I don't suffer from depression. So, like, whenever someone says, you're depressed because of yeah. this, I'm always like, hmm, okay. I don't know how to address that because I don't know what – I know there's certain people that do have absolute chemical imbalances. But what does that chemical imbalance come from? Does it come from childhood trauma? Does it come from just some sort of a part of their body that's not functioning correctly, like a bad thyroid or a bad yeah. kidney? Is the brain, like, very similar? Is that the case? Or – are they in uh, a bad economic situation, in a bad relationship, with yeah. bad friends, and a bad job? Is that what's causing depression? Like, I think there's a host of variables. So, yeah, it's a uh, you get in a pattern. You don't know. You don't know why. I mean, your family did you? Your parents uh, did they stay together? No. Yeah. So you. But yeah. my stepmom, or my stepdad rather, and my mom yeah. have been together since I was seven. Yeah. So you had the the stable. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's, I always think that's 90% of it. When you grow up in chaos, I think you get wired for a certain hypervigilance and a nervousness mm -hmm. and an anxiety because you think like more bad shit's coming. Yeah. So if you had any kind of trauma as a kid, I think you're wired to keep your eyes open a little wider, which also lends itself to some kind of depression. It could, yeah. most certainly. For me, uh, that hypervigilance led itself to martial arts. Yeah. And then it's also we moved around a lot, so I was picked on a lot. So it was like I was always the new kid. I was like, God, this fucking sucks. Yeah. You know, so that that sort of led me to be wary of others and just you know be, internalize a lot of stuff. Sure. You know? I think I, that's what I did. I just went in my room and watched the Mike Douglas show <laughs> and watched Merv Griffin. Did you know you knew? So that from the time you were seventeen, you were working at Eastside Comedy Club. Yeah. You kind of knew you always wanted to be involved in comedy. Yeah. From the time I was ten, I was oh, into the wow. Marx Brothers first. Then like Cosby and George Carlin and uh, I used to listen to Lenny Bruce records as a kid. I didn't understand them, but I just heard that's the the best person. 
And I always, I think I like that comedians just called out bullshit. And I must have felt like there was a lot of bullshit around me because I liked it. It wasn't called. Yeah. Yeah, I liked that there's like George Collin was like, no, this makes no fucking sense. Yeah. And so I love those people. And, and, and the lighter stuff too, like just silly comedians who just pointed out uh, the ridiculousness of things. So I loved Seinfeld when I was a kid and, and Leno, but especially Carlin, I think, when I was little. Yeah. Well, Groucho Marx is pretty underrated and underappreciated sure. to this day. Like, remember when he was hosting that show, You Bet Your Life? Oh, absolutely. So funny and so dirty and weird. Yeah, and the way cigar. he looked at people. Like, and, and even like when you watch a movie like Duck Soup, the Marx Brothers movie, it's all about the ridiculousness of government. And, uh, and something drew me to those people. I think it was also because I was bad at sports. And so I thought, this system's unfair. Like, so I'm a dick because I can't play softball. <laughs> yeah, so, so it led me to like look for something else. Yeah. But back then, no one else liked comedy. There wasn't another person to talk to about it. Now I think everyone likes it. But back then, there was no one was watching Merv Griffin but me. Really? When I was little, I mean, when I was 15, I didn't like come to school and we would laugh about Jeff Altman on Merv Griffin. I was just alone with it. Wow. Yeah, I became a fan of uh, stand-up, watching stand-up on TV, like watching like The Tonight Show and Evening at the Improv and stuff like that. Yeah. But really the big one, the run that really kicked in for me was my parents took me to see Live on the Sunset Strip. Oh, wow. And I was a teenager, young teenager. And uh, I remember being in the audience while Richard Pryor was on stage slaying and people were laughing so hard and I was laughing so hard. I looked around. I'll never forget this moment. Because I looked around at the crowd while the movie was going on, and all these people were like, ah, yeah. falling out of their chair, slapping <laughs> their knee, holding their chest. And I was like, this guy's just talking. He's just talking, and he's this funny. Yeah. This is incredible. I'm like, this is an amazing thing this guy can do. Like, I'd never seen real stand-up before. I'd only seen, like, you know, like someone on the Johnny Carson show do a couple minutes and tell a few jokes. That, in my mind, was what stand-up was. It wasn't until, and I'd listened to some of the old Bill Cosby stuff and some of the old Carlin stuff on, on uh, records, but I'd never seen it, like yeah. seeing the movie Live on the Sunset Strip. And that planted, didn't plant a seed like I can do it, but it did plant a seed like, holy shit, this is yeah. possible. Yeah. Like, this is crazy that this is possible. And it's still the best special. It's one of the best ever, without a doubt. He's still, he holds up in a, in a very... Very unique way, where a lot of comedy from that era just, I mean, including Lenny Bruce, doesn't really hold up. Yeah. Like, it's, it's because it's contextual. Like, if you were there in that time, it was groundbreaking. But that's not groundbreaking anymore because the culture has moved on so far, and a lot of that could be attributed to his insight. Like, Lenny Bruce's insight changed the way a lot of people thought and discussed a lot of, like, really important issues at that time. But there was something about Pryor's, his honesty and his his delivery and his point of view that's like to this day like god he was good I, I there was a record they put out a few years ago where they didn't tell you what album it was but it was just bits and i i think maybe a lot of of, of bits that were recorded when he recorded an album but didn't make the album like it was just it was it was uh in eras like 70s 80s 90s and when you listen to his stuff from the 70s, it's so militant. Yeah. It's so militant, and it all works perfectly today. Like, what he's mad about. Yeah. All applies to right now. And then when he goes honest about himself and 
relationships, you do feel it like, oh, there's not many people opening up like this. Right. Like, there's not a comparable person. There's a lot of comedians who talk about their lives, but he's really, he's ripping open the, the veins much deeper than anybody even now. Sure. And he was talking about horrific addiction issues that he had back yeah. then. I mean, addiction issues that caused him to light himself on fire. Yeah. I mean, when he was talking about that back then, who the hell had done that? You remember he would do that thing where he'd light a match and, and move it around? Like, what, who am I? I'm Richard Pryor running down the street. Yeah. Like, and joke around about lighting himself on fire and, and have the whole audience laugh. It was like, wow. It was crazy. There was some some bits where he talked about having multiple sclerosis mm. near the end of his life, and he was still doing the comedy store. And on audio, it, they were riotously funny, brutally honest bits about you know what it felt like to be that sick. And yeah. I had, I don't think it ever was on an album before. I think when he was doing that, um, when he was uh, coming back to the comedy store, when he was really sick before he died, I was the guy who went on after him oh, every wow. night. Every night for like five weeks. Oh, geez. Every time he did a show. I bombed so many times going on after Richard Pryor. Oh, <laughs> it was death. And how was he? Terrible. He was, he was old and he was sick and he was drunk and he was on pills and he probably shouldn't have been there. But he just wanted to do it. It wasn't good. Like it yeah. wasn't, wasn't Richard Pryor. It was like they had it. First of all, he was really unhealthy. So they had to crank the microphone up like. Oh, so you couldn't even hear him barely hear him and you know he would like i always love pussy like it wasn't there was nothing there yeah he was just kind of talking and ranting and he would you know he'd be on stage with a drink and people didn't know how to respond and they would give him this amazing round of applause when he got on stage and it took forever for them to get him to the stage because chewy who worked the door and this guy dave um would carry richard Pryor to the stage yeah. And slowly just move him towards the stage and all the time the people would be clapping and then they would sit him down and then they would put the microphone in place and crank that fucking thing up to 10 and then he would do his stand-up but it was it was people almost like paying homage homage paying yeah. homage they were there they were there to see the great one yeah you know and he was there and he's still alive it's like wow we're seeing like the greatest stand-up comedian of all time he's right there Wow you know, it was more of that than it was like him doing really well. It was never like a good set. I never saw him kill. And then you would come out. I would eat dick. <laughs> just go up there and just eat plates of shit. People were so depressed. <laughs> There's no way out. What was your attempt to uh, to pull out of it? Um, I would go on stage and I would say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, an unknown white guy, after the greatest comedian of all time, this douchey looking. Italian looking kid <laughs> and I would just make fun of myself for a few minutes yeah. and you know and then sometimes I talk about how uh, Richard Pryor was like you know huge because it would take a long time for him to get off the stage too yeah. so that was the other thing like I would get introduced by Jeff who's a <laughs> piano man and I would pass Richard and Dave and Chewy as they were carrying Richard off like you'd have to kind of move around them yeah. and then get onto the stage and then you'd have to say, Richard Pryor, ladies and gentlemen. And sometimes you see people's eyes, they're like, fuck. I'm like, what did we just see? Like, yeah. this is so depressing. Facing their own mortality. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, Richard, they like, I remember, like, he wasn't supposed to drink, but he drank anyway, yeah. like, because they had him on all this medication. You're like, fuck you. We just kept drinking. Yeah, it was weird. 
It was yeah. it was dark. I remember meeting him at a, a birthday party. I went with Jim Carrey to his birthday party, and and it, it it was it was sad. I mean, it was it, it was sad to see somebody that ill, and then especially when you think of just the power of the guy. Yeah. The, the, just how crazy funny he was. Because there's not that many people just to the core funny. They, I remember when Robin Williams used to come into the improv in the late 80s. And he would kill so hard, there was just no way to recover. The, just, the room <laughs> couldn't recover. Yeah. It, it just, and there's not that many people who can do that now. I feel like people could follow each other now. You know, Louis comes in and you go on after him and, you know, and, and like he kills. But like when Robin Williams would come in, like you wanted to end the show. Right. Well, there was only one of him then, you yeah. know, and now there's like Louie, but then there's Burr and then there's Diaz and then there's there's a lot of guys now. There's and, Santino and Ari Shafir and there's like there's so many funny people now. I or just, maybe the audience understands in a different way and they can transition. Mm, you know, they maybe. just they're they're used to comedy and they're like, oh, now this guy where in the old days you'd come on and they're, you know, they couldn't go. And, oh, we're about to enjoy this this potpourri of people right well so you still see people bomb after someone who kills yeah still that still happens all the time but i think that um maybe i was more i think what you're getting at the store now and this is what's been really interesting lately is you're getting a lot of comedy tourism yeah. like a lot of people fly over from europe just to come to the really? store a wow. lot a lot and it's worth it those lineups are crazy some night oh yeah like i'll look at the lineup and go does this audience understand how insane this is? Yeah. Yeah. And there's three shows going on simultaneously. There's the belly room, the original room, yeah. and the main room. And everyone and you know, a lot of guys do hat tricks. Well, they'll do all yeah. three rooms in the, one night. The cellar is like that. The comedy cellar in New York, there's three rooms. And you go in some nights and it's like, Yeah, Chappelle's coming, Rock just left. <sighs> and like, really? Tonight? Yeah, Schumer's here. There's only a few of those places. I had to follow Andrew Dice Clay and Ray Romano at the cellar once. <laughs> it was like the cleanest guy and the dirtiest guy. <laughs> do, you, do you know who I had the worst uh, sets after ever? Who I could not follow? Martin Lawrence. Oh, yeah. Martin Lawrence in the 90s. Sure. I remember Chris Rock says that Martin Lawrence was opening up for him in the 90s uh, or, or, or you know, before he did his big specials and that he was downstairs in the dressing room and he could feel the theater rocking and he went on stage and he said he, he had a, had some shows where he couldn't follow him the way he wanted to and yeah. that's what made him work hard and then develop those great specials right was because having martin open for him scared him yeah well he also said that he did too many crowds in front of white people yeah too many shows in front of white <laughs> crowds and they were just too too happy and <laughs> too accepting and then martin lawrence would just bring the thunder Dude, he was so strong. Before he put the wetsuit on and ran around with a gun in the middle of the city in yeah. the in the heat, like yeah. uh, what whatever fuse he blew. But before that, that fucking guy would go on stage with a leather jumpsuit on and just destroy. Yeah. I mean, destroy in a level that people don't appreciate today. Yeah. People forgot about him. Have you ever seen Gary Owen? Yes. I was down at. Uh doing a set. I was playing Bonnaroo and I wanted to go on the night before to warm up and I went to Zany's in Nashville and, and he's there and I hadn't seen him before and I did a set and uh, you know it was okay. It wasn't very good. It was just fine. And then he gets on. I don't, I've never heard louder laughs. I've never heard louder laughs. Me and my manager Jimmy Miller sat in the back of the room and we were like what is happening? And then we start really paying attention going 
how funny is this guy? Like, like, like listening to the material, like, is this good material or is he pandering or what is it? And then we're like, wait a second, his material's incredible. Like, he is awesome. And it was the biggest laughs I've ever heard. He had a sustained, like, killing the crowd, you know, where the place is just rocking and moving He's up and down. He's a white guy that does a lot of black shows, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, he went a full 20, 25 minutes at 10 before he slowed it down. And had to slow it down or he was going to kill these people. <laughs> and I swear, I thought, I don't know if I'm in the same business as this guy. Like, is this what we're supposed to do? <laughs> well, when you tr- when you jumped back into it, you thought that three years ago, you were just going to have some fun and go and yeah. do it. When was it that you realized, like, I'm a comic now. I got to kind of, like, really aspire to a high standard. Like, I have to really tighten everything up. I think, um, you know, I would. I was watching Louie work on his new set very seriously at the Comedy Cellar, and he'd say, yeah, I got nothing, I got nothing tonight, and go on stage and just crush. Uh, and then I played Carnegie Hall, and I had a good set for the New York Comedy Festival, and then as a surprise, I brought Sandler out to do a surprise set after me. And I thought I did great. And then when he came out, the, the laughter went up 20%. Where I felt it, like, oh, I'm like at a seven and he's at a nine and a half. Like, it was a different, the sound changed. Right. And I thought, oh, there's a whole nother step here that I need to kick into gear. I always want the material to be good, but that, oh, there's a a way to crush that's hard to do, to get that Mm. momentum and have the ideas. And obviously, Chris Rock is one of the best of everybody at it because he has so many great ideas but understands how to get the room rocking really hard. The cadence and the pace yes. and the... And to yeah. find what, what is in your cadence that does it, that doesn't become obnoxious or loud or just, right. you know, just talking fast. Like, how do you find an original way to create that energy in a room? I think the only way is constant repetition. You have to be yeah. on stage all the time. Yeah. And you have to really always be trying to improve it and you have to always be listening to your recordings and you have to have and you, you got to listen to bad sets too. When sets yeah. go bad, exactly. you got to go, Ooh, why did that go bad? Yeah. Let's listen to this fucking thing. Yeah, I always Urgh. hear myself mumble. Like, oh, they didn't even hear what I said. Yeah. That's big. Well, I got to stumble. Well, I gotta Get go, out of here. I got to go pick up a child. Oh. I'm going to do my end of the show plug. Children. I got the big sick. Get a website, dude. Go okay. To, go to Squarespace. I'm going to do that today. Make your own website. So you're saying there's a place called Squarespace mm. that has websites. Yes. I've, I've heard you about this. You can make your own website. Okay. I'm at the Wilbur on the 24th. In Boston. July of 24th. 23rd at Ridgefield Playhouse in Connecticut. And the 25th. Cancel, cancel the Connecticut Columbus gig. Theater, Providence, Rhode Island. Cancel all Connecticut gigs. Why is that? I always do. Just for the hell I don't of it. work in Connecticut. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's not a real state. Okay. I'm gonna it's figure, a highway. I'm going to figure that out. It's a highway between Boston and New York. I'm going to let you know if that's true. Just don't do it. But as of now. We're going to talk later. After that, you're like, oh my God, you were so right. That Connecticut gig was horrible. Okay. I need Connecticut people to show me he's wrong. All these Connecticut people are mad at me now. I get emails from Connecticut. Hey, bro, how about lay off fucking Connecticut? How about <laughs> drive to Boston or drive to New York and recognize what the fuck you're doing? <laughs> Chad Apatow, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here, man. That's it for the week. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>